and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, what have you been playing slash watching lately? Uh, I've been playing Resident Evil Village, which may be confusing because we talked about that last week. Yes, uh, but there is a reason behind the kind of madness here, right? I mean... We are recording this episode before the Resident Evil episode. Essentially, um, we'll probably have already explained this on the Resident Evil podcast, but <laughs> basically we recorded that one really hot so we could um, get it up with uh, some strong impressions of the game as it releases. And so this one, being specifically about the Mass Effect series, this podcast, to tie in with the fact that the Mass Effect Legendary Edition is releasing on um, uh, current-gen consoles and PC... This episode focuses more specifically on that original Mass Effect trilogy. Therefore, me and Matthew have played it and we can talk about it. So that is a convoluted way of explaining the podcast <laughs> that you're listening to. But um, yeah, yes. Yeah, so, current, yeah. Currently, I am enjoying Resident Evil Village, but you will already know if that held to be true in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did Matthew's opinion curdle? You will um you will already know because you've already it's already happened to you. Wow, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's Oh like, my god, it's like a time travel story. It's a nightmare this one. <laughs> it's like Christopher Nolan's tenet. Um yeah. It's exactly <laughs> Except like hopefully you can hear both our voices clearly throughout. <laughs> yeah. Um although I will sometimes walk backwards like Kenneth Branagh does. Um so yes. <laughs> Matthew, you've also been uh, watching Nomadland on Disney Plus. How's that treated you? Yeah, I I really liked it. Um, it's one of those ones which you know I came to it after all the awards. Then I watched it and was like, oh yeah, fair enough. You know, that's that's deserving, which isn't always the case of these things. But yeah, I you know I love the tone of it. Beautifully shot. Um, I must have put my hands up. It is the first Chloe Zhao film I've seen. Um, I've I've not seen her earlier indie things. Um, I'm fascinated to see what she's done with her Marvel film. She's doing one of the big Marvel films this year, right? Yeah, Eternals, which is uh, basically a bunch of, uh, I think, Jack Kirby, kind of like godlike cosmic characters who, to be honest, I don't really give a shit about. But I'm sure Marvel will pick it because they've got some kind of interesting angle on it. Um, And and if nothing else, like a massive cast as well. Yeah, I mean they've done this before. You know, they've they've got a habit of kind of basically harvesting like indie talent um, to make films. You know, a lot of their films are made by people who probably hadn't worked with budgets sort of beyond five million before. You know, I don't really know what the motivation is behind that. But the, did you see that absolutely hilarious um, Kevin Feige quote during the rounds where he was talking about Chloe Zhao? No, and. He was like, "Oh, it's amazing! Like, it's absolutely amazing what she can do in camera." You know, she, she, you know, she did some test footage, and we were like, "Wow, look at the sea!" And you're like, "Yeah, that's it's called filmmaking, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> People have been doing it for hundreds of years." <laughs> I, I sort of um, the thing I could never get out of my head about Kevin Feige. I worked with this guy years ago who said that Kevin Feige looks like a dad at a jumble sale, um, <laughs> like uh, sort of like he's selling. Um, you know, old uh, sort of PC CD-ROM box games out of the back of his car boot. Um, I can sort of see that. Maybe it's the baseball cap, I don't know. A guy who's made billions at a jumble sale. Yeah, exactly. Um, So yes, Matthew, in this episode then, we're going to talk about Mass Effect as discussed. So it's likely to be a slightly shorter episode. What we've decided we're going to do is we're going to fire through a bunch of our sort of memories of Mass Effect what we perceive to be the legacy of the series, uh, what kind of happened to Bioware in the intervening years since the games came out, and uh, a whole bunch of associated stuff 
um, linked with Mass Effect. So we're keen not to just kind of like retrace over bits of the story. For one, me and Matthew have not had time to play through all of it. So a difference between this podcast and the Resident Evil one is that uh, we haven't like gone out of our way to get the Mass Effect Legendary Edition off of EA because A, I don't really know anyone at EA anymore, but B, um, I also didn't think it was as necessary to discuss these games because they are literally the games with a few tweaks. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think there was much need to um, to replay them. But, yes, I think that in, um, in this episode, people will probably appreciate the uh, discussion about how the series fits into the RPG genre. And then in the last part of the um, episode, we're going to go through our top 10 Mass Effect companions, which would be a quite an interesting sort of cross-section of um, what uh, me and Matthew were thinking in our sort of like early to mid-20s as we, um, you know, kind of <laughs> courted the affections of some of these characters. Uh, so, yeah, good stuff. So, Matthew, why don't you tell me a bit about your relationship with Mass Effect and how you feel about the series overall? Yeah, so I feel like I actually came to it a little later than most. Um, for some reason, Mass Effect didn't register with me at all before it came out. And I don't know if this is because when they were ramping up previews of the game, I'd already started on Endgamer and I just had such tunnel vision about getting that job done right and you know absorbing every bit of like Nintendo information I could. But... You know, I, I remember like when review, like even when review code came in for this, and I heard like Xbox World talking about it next to us, thinking, you know, what the hell is Mass Effect? Does that matter? Does anyone care? Yeah, they, I, <laughs> this may sound like a weird indication of importance, but I remember they freelanced it out, which sometimes is an indicator that like in house there's not as much interest. You know that 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 can be the dynamic. Sometimes it's just because you don't have staff available. But you know, if if it's something really important, that tends to happen in house. So that's some kind of gauge of it. And you know, I remember them talking about it and being like, "Yeah, it's okay." So I think I, most of what I thought early on was kind of absorbed by a slight in-house Xbox world indifference to Mass Effect. Where if I'd actually turned my swivel chair 180 degrees. I would have been looking at PC Gamer, and if I'd listened to them... Actually, no, I wouldn't have listened to them, because it came out later on PC. That's probably why, because they were super into it. And actually, I think it was listening to them talk about it, which is when I finally played it on 360, because Mass Effect came out later. Is that right? I think that's right. Yes, that is right. It came out early 2008 on uh, PC, I believe, and late 2007 on um, Xbox 360. Yeah, so that's that. That's that's my weird relationship with the start of it. It kind of came in two waves. There was like a slight, eh, Mass Effect, I'm not going to spend money on that. And then this sort of like, it came later that it was it was a, you know, a, a better thing. And even then, it took me a while to, to click with it. It wasn't really until Mass Effect 2 that I really got into it. And even then, I say I really got into it. These are games, I've played each one once. I've I've never gone back to them. I have like a version of Mass Effect in my head. And maybe that kind of like not having that extreme sort of Bioware fervor that some people have like helped me enjoy the series a bit more, as we'll talk about later. You know, Mass Effect Three obviously triggers um, certain emotions in certain people. But f- yeah, for my money, I, I you know I, I was kind of a, a a dabbler who really rates Mass Effect Two. It's probably my it's probably the best summation of my relationship. I think that probably describes quite a lot of people's relationship with Mass Effect. So it's an interesting series in the sense that, like, this was um, the first one was Bioware's uh, first kind of next generation RPG for the time. 
It being an Xbox exclusive was a big deal. This was a developer behind Knights of the Old Republic and Jade Empire. They were well regarded for sure. Obviously, before that, Baldur's Gate. So, been around for a while. And uh, this definitely felt like a next-gen RPG for the time. This came up in my best games of 2007, the original Mass Effect. So, my relationship with it was that I did like it, but I wasn't sort of fanatical about it. It was interesting, actually. I read um, Eurogamer's review of the original Mass Effect this morning, just before we started recording this. And it was by Kristen Reed. And he's actually, like, slightly indifferent to a lot of the elements that define Mass Effect. So just how talky it is, how much time you spend in conversation. Mentions Mm. how, like, the uh, first game, you waste way too much time just wandering around the Citadel talking to people. And Mm. I actually think that's a fair criticism because I remember feeling like I was spending way too much time on the Citadel in boring conversations in the first one. And then <clears throat> the second one just seems to completely strip out any of the boring bits. I think it's because they worked out what are the most interesting types of party members we can have travelling along with you. That's part of why that's so effective. Also, at the same time, in the first one, you were just an unambiguously good guy doing the you know the good guy things to try and save the galaxy for the good guys. In the second one, you literally work for the people you're told are bad in the first one. So it's a real kind of shift in dynamic, and your place in that galaxy feels a little more uncertain. Um, mm. And so, and the third one, I think, the third one is just not quite as good as the second one. I think it, it feels not rushed, but it doesn't feel as complete as the second one does in terms of the... I don't know, the the second one just has such a perfect balance of types of characters and quests that they put you on, and a great overarching story that yeah. actually is like not really attached to the wider lore of, of Mass Effect that much. Like Obviously the Reapers are the yeah. big overarching threat, but the second one has its own self-contained story, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's weird, because I always think of second one as basically like Companions, the game. It's a game about companions, where the overarching story is you know entirely about getting enough companions on your side so you can go and do this big thing. And it's kind of the perfect vehicle for, like, Bioware's strong companion writing, which has always been one of their one of their strengths. And I'd argue it's, like, probably of all, all the Bioware things I have played, it's the one where, like, companions feel, like, front and centre and, you know, they're the most integral to, to not just the plot, but, like, how the game functions as a whole. Yeah, I think that's uh, completely fair, especially in the second one, which has these, obviously, um, loyalty missions, which are yeah. basically extended side quests, that, but like TV episodes that give you the spotlight on your character, tell you all about their motivations and help you resolve something in their lives. So you as a player feel like you get closer to them. And I think maybe uh, the review, the reviews for the Mass Effect 2 were incredibly positive at the time, but I do wonder if, in retrospect... their ability to bring companions to life in that way was actually like a really rare event. Maybe we were watching maybe the best version of this in the kind of modern age and maybe didn't realise how good we had it. And I I don't feel like I've played a party RPG since then that's done that. Um, Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit about Andromeda later, but, you know, that's the the huge flaw for me there is just like the, the companions are so weak. It's so noticeable. Um, they really sort of struggled to do to do anything interesting with a lot of them. I'd, I'd also say, like, I think it factors into some of the disappointment with Mass Effect 3 in that the way it uses companions is quite odd, in that a lot of people who were previous companions come back as almost like cameo roles. 
and they have like a little moment to shine in the main story and if you are particularly connected to certain characters you know as i was you could you could maybe understand being disappointed i mean like i am definitely less keen on mass effect 3 and but it's mainly because it did a lot of stuff i didn't like with specific things you know like it it didn't it didn't treat thane right i didn't think that, you know what what happened with thane in in 3 isn't what what you know the kind of grand continuation of that friendship basically it felt like it was concluding a lot of relationships which had only just started in two the benefit of two is it introduces loads of cool people and it continues some key relationships from one where three is just endings 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 and you know it's it's quite hard to take mm. yeah i would say that some of those endings are very powerful i remember how the liara story ends very very well in mass effect 3 and i thought that was very powerful very good bit of um, writing and acting mm. but i see what you mean it's tough because obviously like you say if some some members are in your some of the members from previous games are in your party others aren't the ones who are in your party tend to get a better shake than the ones who aren't sometimes i would say that like the way it lets you resolve some of your romances in three is quite satisfying but i can see what you mean and i think mm. that maybe i'm getting into the weeds a bit here but the one of the reasons they did that mass effect citadel dlc was so that you could have more time with these characters who you really you really enjoyed spending time with, all in the same place, all doing like mm. almost slightly fan servicey hanging out stuff to remind you of why you in you enjoyed spending time with them so much. Um, honestly, when I think about Mass Effect, I get slightly it's slightly disappointing that it's this kind of like magic went away so. Inquisition, I think, Dragon Age Inquisition does have a lot of the same DNA as Mass Effect in terms of the companions. The companions are extremely good in that game. They're great in 2 and Origins, actually. Like That's something that Bioware didn't lose focus of in those games. But obviously we're now in this kind of weird era for Bioware where they've released Anthem, a game that had, you know, a, a story and characters that were completely redundant, just entirely pointless. And then obviously Andromeda, like you say, where the party members didn't resonate in the same way. So, Matthew, as yeah. Mass Effect Legendary Edition releases, where do you think Bioware is at? And what do you think this particular re-release represents for the studio as at this moment? I think they're in a very similar place to where 343 are at with Halo. They are, I think, just as you said, that like what Mass Effect represents was kind of like Bioware you know, stepping into the next generation as it was then and kind of doing something new. I th I think the generation after that th threw them quite hard. I think there was a need to kind of like grow their formula in some way. And I don't think they ever really settled on what on what it should be and what it needed to be. Inquisition, well, I say that Inquisition is is that next step and is great. I really love Inquisition. And, you know, Inquisition is very much the template for what they then do with Mass Effect in Andromeda. Um, it just doesn't work for various reasons. It doesn't work. They they felt very sort of diminished after that. Um, I would say in the same way that when three four three took over Halo, you know, Halo Four actually is is okay as a kind of tail end of that generation. But I think you know Halo Five was was very muddled. I think they didn't really know what like a more powerful kind of bigger Halo needed to be. Like the philosophy of Halo got a bit kind of unbalanced. Yeah. I think that's probably fair. So with Bioware, it feels like you say that the 
the increasing scope of games in the last generation, they were somewhat a victim of it. So um, in the kind of like alleged making of Mass Effect Andromeda, they were doing all this kind of randomly generated planet stuff, which sounded like a completely terrible idea on paper, like never should have been something they wasted their time on. Um, And it feels like just chasing that kind of open world template. I mean, to be honest, the open world stuff in Inquisition is not what's good about it. Like the actual spectacle of walking around that world and seeing dragons fly around and stuff. That is very impressive. But as you're kind of like looking for astrolabes and doing all these kind of like boring sort of side quests and um, fetch quests, it really doesn't amount to much. All of the best stuff Mm -hmm. is still in like your party and you know how it kind of looks and feels and what the world is like it's not nothing to do with the actual kind of side quest design and stuff so yeah they've gone so bogged down yeah i'd I'd say the key difference is is one of genre as well maybe people disagree with this but like for me like fantasy sort of exploration kind of immersing myself in a like a, a natural habitat that's kind of beyond comprehension is like a big part of the of the appeal where with Mass Effect, with sci-fi, I prefer that genre to kind of ex- explore ideas a bit more closely, a bit more explicitly. You know, there is still the Brave New World element of it, like you're going out and you're discovering amazing things, but fundamentally a lot of them are like just big barren old rocks. You know, it's it's not as exciting a place as, as fantasy where anything can happen. You know, I think it's telling that people love Mass Effect 2, even though it is more limited in scope. You know, if anything, it took away what open world aspirations Mass Effect 1 had with the Mako. It kind of, you know, reversed all that. Did anyone care? No, because it got you to the ideas faster. Like, I think it's actually okay for Mass Effect to be quite enclosed stories, which are just very, very dense with ideas, uh, dilemmas, you know, that the... The, the kind of the thought process you go through of tackling them um i don't think it needs to tap into this sense of like oh my god i'm on this huge vast basically just empty ice field like there's no benefit to that yeah i think you can also have that spectacle without needing to have like a massive amount of sort of you know real estate for players to wander around um, yeah so i think the mass effect does this quite well with the um the way that it has you deal with the um krogan like the krogan's kind of like um their planet which i have not noted the name of here which seems like poor research doesn't it um that i remember when you kind of like when you fight the big worm and stuff like that you feel like you're on that world even though you're not sort of like you say um doing loads of exploration and stuff and i think that that's kind of what they sort of need to get back to in a way i think that um mass effect is a trilogy is the ultimate in like smoke and mirrors kind of game design it's mm. There's obviously kind of like loads and loads of sort of uh, detail in how the um, the permutations of the choices you make pan out, including entire characters who may or may not appear in the story. All that is really impressive. But I think that at the same time, it's very much like you're wa- walking through movie sets a lot of the time. And mm. I, But it doesn't harm the game in any way because it's such an adrenaline rush just to kind of be there, to be in these places. As a kind of fictional location, fictional set of locations, the Mass Effect universe feels very complete. It's sort of, it's just such a, visually, such a confident game. Like, it's got such a great mm. visual identity. And, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I don't I don't really know why they became so hung up on open world stuff. It's just watching everyone else do it, I suppose. But what's really interesting about these three games combined is that if you just run through the main stories in the three games, it'll probably take you about 70 hours. It's not actually, like, that long. 
It's yeah. um, it's quite they're quite short games, and there's like mm. like you say, there's nothing wrong with that. There are ways to prolong that. There are side quests you can go scanning planets, all that stuff. There are ways to extend the game, but you'll never extend the game to like the length that say Ghost of Tsushima was. You'll never get it to like sixty hours plus, but you don't no. need it to. There's just no need for it. And it's that thing of like they they seem like the ultimate victims of conflating like hours played with value. Like they just don't, and it's just such a shame because. I just feel like there's so many wasted years of Bioware at this point now. It's 2014 was when Inquisition came out. And in the intervening years, had Anthem, a proper like disaster of a game that they've just given up on now. Which, you know, mm. I think they should give up on it and just focus on making like one thing good. That's like what they should be doing. Mm. And then, um, and a Mass Effect game that people didn't like. And that's such a poor showing for all those years. Yeah. And I, I feel bad for Bioware because they are they get such a heated response on Twitter. And so, like, I would never, ever kind of level that at individual developers. All kinds of stuff happened behind the scenes, no doubt. Absolutely. But the end result to players is it's just Mass Effect 3 came out nine years ago, and it just feels like we've we've missed something. We've, like, something mm-hmm. went away and we didn't get it back. That's how I feel about Mass Effect. No, I'm, I'm in complete agreement. Yeah, it's a bummer. I wonder as well, like, um, it seems like the visual changes with this Legendary Edition might be contentious as well. So who knows what kind of um, reception it will get ultimately. I'm sure by the time people are listening to this, there's more discourse about how the colour of the sky has changed on, you know. Yeah, yeah. I I, I kind of, I always bounce off that discourse massively because it's one thing when you put two images next to each other to dunk on it on Twitter and go, oh, actually, I prefer the image on the right. But that's not how you play games. Like, if you'd show me that that legendary footage, I would have just said, oh, yeah, I've kind of remember- that's, I think, how it looked, didn't it? Isn't that how it looked? Hmm. Like, my mind isn't that good. My memory is so vague. I'd be like, oh, yeah, that looks fine. That looks good. That's that's Mass Effect, isn't it? It's, it's this really, like, granular dunk culture. <laughs> it's just not for me. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've pre-ordered it. I'm well up for playing these again. Like, um, I don't know yeah. how quickly I will play through them again. But what about you, Matthew? Do you think you um you'd go through the trilogy? Yeah, again? D- definitely. I mean, so for starters, yeah, I've only ever played it through once. Um, I just accumulated bad decisions. So, like, I you know, there there there's like some characters didn't even make it to my Mass Effect three. So God knows what they actually get up to in the game. I'd be intrigued <laughs> to see. Um, like rather shamefully, I, I've never played any of the Mass Effect DLC. <laughs> Um, which I know is quite substantial and a lot of people's favourite stuff, you know, or some of their favourite stuff is contained within it. So I, f- I feel like there's actually quite a chunk of this I haven't seen, I you know, I haven't been able to kind of enjoy. And also the promise of, like we said, being able to play this quite substantial trilogy but probably get through it, you know, in, you know, each one in 20 or so hours. That's very appealing to me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm I'm well up for it as well. So when you say you haven't played any of the DLC, did you get Zaid and Kasimi in the second one? So did you did that? Did you have to buy Kasumi DLC? It was it came with the game. Um, it was like I think Kasimi and Zaid came with the game. There was like a Cerberus I, thing. I, you, I got yeah. Zaid, who's just a total bust. Like <laughs> that character is just all I remember is I think he's got a burn. I don't know, maybe. I think it's like eye is he's lost sight of one eye or something. Yeah. I agree that Zayed is one of the worst companions for sure. But, but but I thought he was just like a pre order freebie and I was like, Well, there's the freebie character <laughs> who like never ever gets mentioned. Like whenever you see him on the ship, he's just so noticeably got nothing to contribute to the game. <laughs> um Kasumi, I swear I didn't get Kasumi because uh I like I was you know, reading into it a bit. 
her loyalty mission or the kind of the sort of, sort of uh, going to this sort of swanky party, I have no recollection of that at all. You would remember it as well because it's yeah, I, that's yeah. It, it sounds like my my kind of deal. So yeah, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> Yeah, so my understanding is that both came as part of the same thing. This is back when publishers were doing those really naff attempts to fight pre-owned games, where it's like, oh, if you buy Arkham Knight, sorry, Arkham City pre-owned, then um, you have to like pay for Catwoman missions, and the Catwoman right. missions were all like the worst bits of that game. So, yeah, um, so there was a bit of that going on. So that might be how you missed out on it. What's weird is though, I think when I reviewed Mass Effect Two. I don't recall having access to Kasumi and Zaid, so they must have been added like either at launch or after launch. Um, Zaid came later, definitely. It was like a, hey, here's that drop you've been waiting for. It's a guy with a weird eye, and you're like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, new companion just dropped. That kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, like you say, I think you would really appreciate the DLC. So the Mass Effect um, one DLC, I don't really recall that well, but the um, the second one, I do remember them very well. Lair of the Shadow Broker, the Liara one. That's a, a really, really strong extra chapter, like a a really kind of top end side quest. Basically, lasts for a few hours. And another one that's pretty good um, called Overlord, um, which uh, is really like um, a TV episode. You'll you'll pl- it, I remember playing it at the time, Overlord, and it has a kind of like um, sort of uh, sort of star trek s kind of twist at the end and you know a conundrum and all this stuff and i just there thinking i would play the shit out of like a mass effect game that basically like dropped a new quest like this every month for like a year and i would oh, i would pay yeah. for that's, every single one of them you know that's how to do it game as service proper star trek style mm, yeah it's like a whole season of extra stuff basically on top of like the game that you've paid for already being substantial that would be mm. um that would be good, and it will never happen because it's um, instead it will be like bullshit kind of season passes and unlocking emotes and all that kind of bollocks. But yeah, um, do you want to see a Krogan dab? Not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was curious, Matthew, what do you think the influence of Mass Effect is and the legacy of the series? When I was thinking about it, I thought I, I watched my um, partner play a bit of Horizon Zero Dawn, and all of the kind of talky conversation bits and that. First of all, seemed quite boring to me, but secondly, looked exactly like Mass Effect to me in terms of you're choosing dialogue from like a wheel thing, and like even the way that the discussions are framed was very Mass Effecty, and it made me think that is the influence of Mass Effect to make games more cinematic rather than um, that more than anything else? Is it more about how RPGs turned into action games over like the last ten years? Is that the influence the series had? What do you reckon? Yeah, I'm probably. I mean, you know, it definitely has a big cinematic influence on on how things are presented. Maybe what people expect from these. I mean, you're right. I mean, it just that becomes the model. Is the 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 camera shot of the other character, the camera shot of you, maybe a bit of your shoulder. I mean, it's in everything from like Batman chatting to people in the Arkham games to yeah, like you say, Horizon Zero Dawn. I mean, the really interesting one is. Uh, Baldur's Gate 3 which obviously you know Mass Effect is is what Bioware decide RPGs are going to be after Baldur's Gate that they've made and now we have Larian basically making Baldur's Gate 3 in the vein of of a of a Bioware game I mean the 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 big change they've made is that it's a lot more cinematic when you talk to people it is a Bioware camera I mean the 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 way you talk with kind of companions and uh, you have the kind of like loyalty quests there. I mean, obviously that harks back to Baldur's Gate 1 and 2. 
but I mean it's it's Mass Effect all over in how it feels. I mean, right down to any game now that has a kind of hub area where you talk to people between missions, everyone will always say Normandy. Like that's that's the go to comparison point. So like you have a campfire in in Baldur's Gate three where you can talk to everyone at night and it's just it's straight up Normandy. Everyone's got their little bit, everyone stands in the little place. I mean Yeah, so I, I think you're right. I think it's 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 influence is it's maybe more on like style than necessarily like substance. Yeah, I think that's um that's about it. It was interesting because when um Mass Effect two came out, it was it launched at the same time as Dragon Age Origins, which felt like the last connection back to that original Boulder Skate and like Neverwinter Nights, you know, mm. classic RPG style. So yeah, I think that um it's, yeah, that is an interesting influence. It's really interesting to me the idea of um, a developer making a something that result that resembles a Bioware game deliberately from about ten years ago because it, it do- that doesn't feel like something I've seen. Like it's um, really interesting, but um, I do I definitely get that vibe when I look at Baldur's Gate three in action. It's um, yeah. I mean, there's the other one um, that jumps out recently was um, uh, did you play anything of Greedfall? No, no, that's um, I've got it on PS Plus. So is is that that is straight up the closest thing I've seen to just someone going, well, if Bioware aren't going to Bioware, I will Bioware, and it's just massive. It is just a Mass Effect game, but in a kind of a sort of Victorian steampunky kind of fantasy world. Hmm. Um, I didn't think it was amazing, but like the the positive reviews I did read of it, or the affection that some people seem to have towards it, is purely because they're like. Well, finally, someone's doing you know what Bioware wouldn't. Um, so that's that's kind of that's kind of interesting. I think that appetite is there, and again, it goes back to like just Bioware really misjudging what people wanted or expected from this generation. They could have made another Mass Effect trilogy that was mechanically and like you know st- visually, structurally exactly the same as the last Mass Effect trilogy. I think that would have been one of the most like critically loved series of this generation if they'd done that yeah i think that um what's really a bummer as well is that there's nothing about andromeda that doesn't sort of fit in terms of the shooting is really really good in andromeda like that mm. that's where there's like a nice generational leap between the two um the two series the two sub-series of mass effect games and yeah, I think just a, a better shooter and just looking really fucking nice. Like maybe with some larger sort of hub areas to explore. Like maybe the Citadel becomes like, um, you know, a bit more kind of open worldy or has more going yeah. on. And you know, and that's the compromise as opposed to doing like you say vast planets of nothing. Yeah, yeah, just a shame to think about what might have been. It's interesting as well because when um, when you look back on the discourse around Mass Effect Two. Obviously, between Mass Effect One and Mass Effect Two, they ditch the um, this kind of like cooldown based RPG uh, numbers flying off of enemies combat system, and make it a straight up third person shooter. So, to some people, I think this marked like a point of no return of classic RPGs sort of um, becoming mainstream games and losing what made them classic RPGs. Now, though, mm. I think that. People have the same affection for this era of Bioware games now that about seven or so years ago when like Pillars of Eternity was taking off on Kickstarter, like that affection existed for those older classic RPGs. I think people have mm. just as much affection for these for these games. It's just that like it's um it's deferred a little bit now and I feel like yeah, like you say, maybe as maybe um the kind of uh, Larian's approach to Baldur's Gate three is like are 
our first taste of maybe a wave of developers trying to make stuff that's a bit like the old kind of Mass Effect style of games. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Um, so, um, I was curious, Matthew, in terms of like when you were kind of covering the Wii, the Wii U. So, we talked about this in the very first episode of this podcast, actually, when you talked about the Wii U launch. And we, we joked about the fact that Mass Effect 3 launched on Wii U out <laughs> of nowhere. Um, the first one and second one didn't come over. But nonetheless, um, they seem to put some effort into porting it. Um, do you have any memories of covering this at the time? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was Mass Effect Three Baffling Edition was its name, because here was a game which basically, like the the importance of Mass Effect Three is that it it finishes and it concludes and it reacts to everything you've done before um, to varying degrees of success. If you haven't played any of that. I actually think Mass Effect 3 as a standalone game is completely baffling. <laughs> like, it, you know, it does an okay job within itself of explaining in the given moment, like, why you're doing something. But you wouldn't understand the importance of any of it. I mean, it, it's it's quite a big gamble in that way. You know, it really is a, a kind of a, we're just going to trust that you have played the other two for all this to make sense. By itself, I have no idea why you'd play Mass Effect 3. I had no idea why they bought it to Wii. I mean really very odd because i know that mass effect one was never on playstation right they i believe they did port it later on to the um ps3 via like a trilogy edition that had all the games oh because when they because when they did mass effect 2 they on playstation they were in the same boat right they didn't have mass effect one at that point and Mm. didn't they do that uh kind of interactive comic thing oh yeah that's right yeah 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 to kind of fill in the gaps. So, like, I could understand you're like, okay, maybe that works. Like, you can jump in at this point, but by three, absolutely no way. But this is just... I, this was so true of, of just Nintendo at the time. Like, the the desperation to get stuff on there and, like, random instalments. So, like, they had the... the it was similar with... Um, Batman, they had the big Arkham City. And, okay, you don't necessarily need to play Arkham Asylum to understand it, but... The idea that you'd be satisfied, you know, with this quite weird sort of chunk of a of a bigger thing, it's never sat easily with me. I mean, it's just sort of, I don't know. I think it is a nice port. I think EA, you know, by all accounts, did a nice job of it. It's just uh, absolutely needless. You'd spend yeah. the whole time going, who the fuck is that? You know, <laughs> like, you just wouldn't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the whole trilogy, that maybe the um, using the kind of Wii U controller... And to, I don't know, manage your inventory or select choices or whatever it might be. I don't know exactly how they did it. That might work quite well. But, um, yeah, very odd. I remember seeing it and thinking, that's really strange that they did that. And, uh, yeah. Um, did you have much envy of covering Mass Effect at the time, Matthew, while you were working on Wii? This quite sexy cinematic game. Like, I see over time, like you said, that obviously Xbox World, a bit of apathetic towards it at first. But then I assume that, like our office in Bournemouth at Imagine your office in Bath at Future became a bit obsessed with these games over time? Oh, yeah, like, fully on board by Mass Effect 2. I mean, yeah, I mean, at this point, like, we knew what the Wii could and couldn't do. So there was, you know, there were some things you were like, maybe, but that was always a, there is no chance in hell. There wasn't a huge amount of point in being jealous of, of, of that, because, you know, if you're jealous of that, you're jealous of, like, you know, 20 other games too, and, you know, jealousy didn't seem like the the best place to be kind of building a magazine from. Um, it would have been quite a weird read if just Endgame at the whole time was just moaning that it wasn't playing Mass Effect. <laughs> um, 
Though actually, like, <laughs> I remember on the, on the team, Kitsy was, uh, we used to write, uh, there was a spread in the mag called Meanwhile, which was basically, like, what was going on on other platforms, which was, you know, something Kitsy wrote every month. Um, this Martin Kitts who's the depth of Endgamer and he was um, yeah because he was like a big next gen game like he was definitely at that point I think felt maybe a bit more into the kind of the other the other gen consoles than the Wii itself so yeah Mass Effect did probably appear in the pages of Endgamer very enthusiastically in the meanwhile section but yeah for me no it was it was fine I mean I just sort of ogled, ogled it being playing. Yeah, it's weird, actually, like, that. what happened between Mass Effect 1 and 2. Like, I don't know if you remember in your offices, was there a lot of buzz for, for Mass Effect 1? So, I remember it being, like, moderate buzz. Um, I de- It was nothing like Bioshock was, or um, Halo 3, which happened in the same year. Like, I think everyone sort of played Mass Effect and, and probably came to the same conclusion that that was good, but maybe there was, like, a missing extra something that would have made it great um but i can't explain why when mass effect 2 came around people were so fucking up for it um (laughs) it's something i don't know maybe just affection for it grew over time or maybe that bioware just talked a good talk with um the follow-up but i don't know what happened there i'm not i can't really remember but it's just yeah yeah. i think like definitely like mass effect 1 for a lot of people totally rebrands bioware i think for a lot of console people there probably is this slight feeling of, you know, Mass Effect 1's coming out, it's made by Bioware, and you're like, oh, they're kind of Baldur's Gate guys, I mean, yeah, it's not really our affair. You have KOTOR on Xbox as well, oh, so... Yeah. yeah, I'll take it back, yeah, sorry, that's, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, but no, even yeah. that, that's Star Wars, that's quite nerdy. Yeah, and it was only on the original Xbox as well, so we're not talking about like a wider yeah, I consolation. Think, listen, it's, it's shakier, but I think it kind of holds. <laughs> Yeah, I could go along with that. I think that a lot of people, this was their first taste of Bioware. And then actually when um, Dragon Age Origins comes out and people jump on that, they probably find it quite odd to go, um, you know, this uh, downgrade in visuals and very different style of game. So yeah, I think you're right there. But Matthew, I was curious if you think that the Bioware will ever get the thread back of what these, um, these games achieved. Like, do you think it's on the cards? And what do you personally want from the future of the series? Yeah, I, I, like like we've already said, I, I'd be happy for them to kind of go back to the, the the kind of the more linear route. I think that's the the best place for them to explore their ideas. I think they can. Um, I think they could easily do it. You know, the, the challenge with a lot of this stuff is like, would EA let them? Because you get the feeling that like some of what happened with Inquisition and Andromeda is also like, you know, there are certain things EA want in the game. There are certain, you know criteria they're probably trying to hit in terms of how long people can play are their systems in put you know are their systems in place for kind of loots i you know loot boxes and all this kind of jazz which mass effect andromeda had in its like horde mode and so you know it kind of depends whether like ea can get into a place where they're happy for for, for those kind of games to happen i would argue that they they're probably more open to it now in like the wake of what happened with uh, Jedi Fallen Order, for example, which I think was probably a bit of a wake-up call in terms of nah, single-player games can actually still deliver. I mean, it did deliver for them. Um, so, you know, obviously what Mass Effect is 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 different to a single-player action-adventure game like that, but I'd hope that someone was open to the idea of of a, of a more traditional Mass Effect again. Um, 
you know, it's where Bioware's strengths lie. I mean, saying that, though, it, it still doesn't really account for how bad the companions were in Andromeda, because structural problems aside, even if that was a linear game, those companions would suck. Yeah, if that feels like it's a kind of changeover in writers and, and people just not nailing it. Of a lot of the RPGs I've played recently, I haven't been bowled over by a lot of companions. Like uh, uh, when I was playing um, The Outer Worlds, like the companions in that were also pretty bad, I thought. I don't know if what's going on there, if just the old guard have moved on and like the, the new generation is still finding their feet. I, you know, I wouldn't want to say. But there's definitely a... A change in tone. I tell you what, Mass Effect Andromeda, it feels like a crew where like everyone is like a Jacob from Mass Effect 2. <laughs> it's like that. It's kind of just off. Yeah, I thought Jacob was fine in isolation in uh, Mass Effect 2. I, I, that's one of the companions I have like no real problem with. He's not in our um, best companions list, but uh, I thought his, um, his sort of story was oh, quite interesting. The... Oh, so there's a bit of a curse of the male... The male human companion in the Mass Effect games. <laughs> is that you taking it? Caden, Jacob, and is it James, James in the Ve- last one? James Vega, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, I, when we were doing our list, I just couldn't remember. I was like, what What did any of these guys do? Apart from maybe get blown up on a planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I Let me um, posit a theory about what's happened with um, companion design. So... These these uh, companions in Mass Effect Two in particular, the companions were so so good as a kind of group. They were like, I remember them being like a pleasure to talk to. You got excited when there was like new dialogue to talk to. Mm. Um, you know, like uh, Miranda or you know Samara or Morden. It was all thing. It was exciting to go and talk to these characters, and I feel like the environment they were creating those games in kind of predates people's like overt fascination with different supporting characters in games and like kind of like the t- culture that are, that kind of emerges around different types of games and like shipping characters and things like that i think that that has accelerated so much that now it's hard for creators to build characters without being conscious of how they might be received in those circles so um right. i think that's why like a lot of the outer worlds characters end up feeling annoying they feel like they're designed to be like either kind of like memed or like crushed, you know, people having crushes on them or whatever. And it feels quite self-aware in terms of the design. Mm. They don't feel like organically good characters. They feel like they've been created to try and generate a response from you. And I I think that with the Bioware games, it starts with like a very good character and like a distinctive set of like quirks and, and a personality and all these things that make them incredibly endearing. And now I think it's hard to create a game in the kind of environment where people are sort of like actively looking to be passionate about different characters. That's my sort of wild theory on this. Yeah, I tell you, it's, I've, I've never really read anything about like companion theory in terms of like, it, not a lot has been said or that I have found about people talking about their design process. Like I'd love someone to do a, a, a big like deep dive with Larian about like the art of basically making a companion in Baldur's Gate 3 and the kind of thought process that goes into each individual one because thinking them as a collective whole thinking them as of individuals it's it's a difficult task and and you're right I, th- I think you know as well as that kind of fan culture which I think you're you're bang on about um like when you are also working in the shadow of great characters like Mass Effect 2s, that's probably difficult because you're like, oh, I kind of want to do this, but then 
you know, I want to do a character with quirky speech patterns, but I don't want it just to be another rip-off of, like, Morden. I imagine there's a lot of, like, baggage or things that you feel like you can't necessarily do without stepping on the toes of, of like, past characters. Hmm. Yeah, I think that um, that is, like, a big problem that Andromeda faced as well. So my understanding is they trimmed at least one companion because they were worried they were too similar to original Mass Effect companions. So they obviously wrestled with that a little bit and didn't quite figure out how to do it. And um, it's interesting. My understanding is that Bioware's process is that different writers own different characters. So I think yeah, like... That's how it works at Larian too. Yeah. So I, my understanding is that Patrick Weeks is very much the writer of Morden. Like Morden Solus is a Patrick Weeks kind of creation. And, mm. and that character is um, is shaped around their sensibilities. And, and that's like, you know, uh, that's a quite a good way of doing it in terms of isolating down a personality, having one person own the character and therefore... There's a consistency there, so yeah, I agree with you. Though I'd love to hear more about that sort of um, that sort of process, but um, hmm. yeah, certainly there's just a just a kind of uh, a rare magic here, and I think it was the exact right environment to create these kind of characters. Yeah, now it's just um, it seems difficult. But um, how does um, Larian do it? Are the characters in, are good in uh, Baldur's Gate three? Yeah, I mean, obviously we've only got the early access version, so you've only got like the first chunk of their arcs. Um, also. You know, it's not the full selection. It's it's like four or five of them, um, but yeah, they're they're written by they're written by individual people. Um, I think they're pretty good. I mean, I I think some people have have had a problem with Baldur's Gate three in that um, the current characters kind of like lean a bit evil, or everyone's maybe a little quick to anger or disagree. So it's quite hard to kind of like with the particular combination they've given you. It's quite hard to kind of keep everyone on board. Like there's a few very there's there's two quite sour characters and like their general kind of sourness maybe overshadows what's interesting about them um but in terms of like you know tapping into like interesting character stories interesting character quirks the vocal performances the way they look they're pretty distinctive and and you know I'm already like into the ones they have I'm really fascinated to see you know the other ones they you know they come up with and and kind of what happens to them as they go on um yeah i think i think they're pretty strong I and mean, it's they're they're like could be the big uh companion renaissance mm. what about the um comp- companions in our old favorite uh yakuza like a dragon matthew isn't there like a crab in that um what are they like <laughs> well that's that's like one of the pound mates that you ring up it's like a i don't think it's a crab is it like a lobster or a crawfish or something i don't know you 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 yeah you, you phone up and a lobster turns up and bites. Um, the companions, I, they're, they're, I'd say they're closer to like JRPG companion members mm. in terms of like you'd have the party there, you know, they only they all kind of appear in cutscenes regardless. There's a little bit of the Normandy effect where there's like a pub that you can go to and they all hang out there and you can talk to everyone. They've, they've sort of got loyalty missions which unlock like new powers so it's got a bit of that kind of like western rpg kind of character thinking mm-hmm. um yeah another interesting one actually on the companion front very quickly is the witcher 3 which has great companions even though none of them are ever in your party there is still i still get the same sense like i know like dandelion for example you know he's never with me but he's in the games you have this relationship with him um it's it's another approach, I think, where someone can just be like prevalent in your life, but not necessarily like mechanically present, and that can still work. 
Yeah, I think that um, it's not an RPG, but Ghost of Tsushima does that quite well as well. Like, um, I think you're kind of like uh, sort of the guy who um, is played by that dude who was uh, the Hanzo Dharma guy in Lost. Like, he's um, oh, yeah. he's like a really memorable... You kind of get the sort of RPG feeling of going on journeys with him and hearing his story and all that stuff. But um, yeah, without the kind of like... Um, without so many of the meaningful choices or that sort of thing. So um, yeah. yeah, I like it when it bleeds over, for sure. I mean, you, there could be... Uh, talking again, just to go back to the what could they do to kind of reinvigorate the series... You know, there could be a bit more of that, like, um, like organic approach to character development that you sort of get in the cinematic action games, like your Uncharted's or whatever, where you have the kind of banter that plays out, and there's quite sophisticated stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of, like, how that banter is, like, doled out as you're doing the adventure to make sure it's not, like, overkill. So get out of the traditional trope of, like, character development only happens in a locked down conversation like if you know mass effect 3 is definitely like more cinematic in some of its set pieces but you could stick to that linear route and bring in a bit of that kind of slightly more slick cinematic third person kind of action and maybe find a kind of an interesting middle ground an idea yeah i that's interesting yeah i think that um the inquisition is actually really good at that in terms of the um the party dialogue that happens while you're exploring the um, yeah. the way they interact is really really fun and an underrated part of that game, and um, mm. it also encourages you to switch out party members and switch in characters you don't use as often just to hear how they kind of interact with other party members. Um, mm. And on a kind of similar note as well, actually, like I suppose it's worth mentioning that um, Persona does this very well too. It's um, not necessarily like a Western style. Again, like there aren't massively meaningful choices, but you do have to choose to spend time with them, and the amount of character detail you get for your individual party members, is way more than you would get in a typical Japanese RPG, I would say. So, um, mm, yeah, mm. it's just everyone but Bioware doing this, basically. And that's like <laughs> that's the big frustration. Um, so, Matthew, before we get to our top ten companions then, we've got, we've got a few more stuff I want to do, um, rattle through here. So I wondered if you had any particularly good mis- memories of uh, missions or events or quests in each Mass Effect game. Is there anything that springs to mind when, um, when we kind of, like, put this plan together? Yeah, um... Definitely in Mass Effect 1, I think the point where that game becomes a lot better and ramps up for me is is Vermeer, which is a Vermeer, Vermeer, which is the 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 planet where you kind of fight, you, you basically encounter Saren properly and um, you have the big kind of Caden Ashley choice. And also another choice, a big chat choice with um, your Krogan pal um, Rex, Rex, not Rax. Is it Rex? Yeah, there's that tense moment where you can basically like turn on each other, and he leave, and he'll leave your party, and he'll be dead. Right? That's what happens. Yeah, basically, I just that 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 planet had a lot of like like big stuff that can happen, and like I mean, pretty. I mean, as you as you go on and play the rest of the games, you think, man, if I'd lost these characters, this would have actually been like pretty huge. Um, that was like the first sort of big sign of its kind of intent that things could that this was going to be a game that that made big decisions. It's also where for me that game like the the law kind of becomes a lot more interesting. The kind of Reaper threat sort of steps up. Um, yeah, because I remember like thinking it was all fine, but that was when I was like, oh, okay, actually, there's a bit more to this world. Because I think uh, uh, you know Mass Effect One does have a 
you know, the, the unfortunate problem of being the first in a game with like entirely new lore and entirely new setting. And at times it does feel like it's teaching you a bit too much. I mean, the fact that the um, there was that sort of hilarious sort of gloss. It wasn't glossary. It had like an inbuilt Wikipedia with that, that good dude with the cool voice basically reading out all the entries. Um, you know, it felt like that you had to just get your head around. Like every conversation, you'd then have to go into the glossary and work out just what the fuck you'd been told. And, you know, that's obviously Mass Effect 2 can hit the ground running. It doesn't have that. But in, t- in terms of like dramatic stakes, that, that mission um, with the whole kind of bomb decision and everything, it just, I don't know, that's where the, the game kind of snapped together. And I was like, oh, um, yeah, I'm in now. Yeah, it's a real good kind of like statement of intent of what the rest of the series will entail. I remember, you know, uh, Saren as a villain. I thought he was a very, very good like opening villain. And then the fact that he's kind of like being basically like controlled by the Reapers was um, was really interesting. And uh, the finale in the Citadel was, you know, quite visually spectacular, but ultimately def- definitely feels like a first act. But um, yeah, that really yeah. sets like a that sets a kind of like good a good kind of template for the rest of the games to follow in terms of the potential weight of your choices. Um, yeah. And this really comes to a head in the second one with the uh, suicide mission, which um, yeah. I noted as one of my um, my sort of highlights is when I played this review, I lost three party members and it was fucking devastating because I didn't know what I was doing in this in this like um this this bit also when i reviewed the game i completely missed legion as a party member like i never went down and activated him so he never joined my party and it meant (laughs) it meant that when you send someone into the pipes in the finale of mass effect 2 i sent in mordin and then like it was a series of poor decisions basically i lost mordin jack and thane they all died and like oh wow that would have been yeah i mean like Morden aside, you aren't losing much in Mass Effect Three, I'd say, with with those character deaths. Um, the the Morden, the kind of conclusion of the kind of Morden storyline in Mass Effect Three, I think, is a highlight. Um, the what I think the the, the the strongest thing about Mass Effect Three is the way that it it like round it. Um, closes stories which started in mass effect one like they actually you know i think they did a really good job of introducing certain ideas and certain sort of like galaxy-wide dilemmas which then mutated in interesting ways across all three games and had some quite spectacular endings in in three um if anything like like weirdly for all the the talk about the ending of three and i'm sure we'll talk about it in a second i think it do, I think the quest up to the ending does do a pretty good job of like wrapping up a lot of stuff in a satisfying way. Yeah, I think so. Like that, I think that's why. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll come to it, but I think that's why my own impression of Mass Effect Three wasn't as like down as some of the other ones because to me, the ending of Mass Effect was the ending with these characters. It was finding out how these you know three game relationships basically close out and i think that the game really pays off a lot of those very very well and um gives you a real good opportunity to say goodbye in loads of different ways and sometimes Mm. those are in quite devastating ways like there's quite a a number of characters can um can basically die in um in mass effect 3 it's just um down to the decisions you make so it can go quite catastrophically wrong at times but yeah i think yeah it also does that hilarious thing, though, of because that suicide mission in Mass Effect 2, which is brilliant, I agree with you, it's like pr- probably my series highlight in terms of the concept and the execution of the thing. But like any of the characters can die. And 
you know, that has huge repercussions in 3, where a lot of these characters play key roles. But the only downside to that is, like, if they do die, they're kind of replaced with people who are quite like them, who you have, like, <laughs> no relationship with. So it'll be, like, just another sort of Turian or another Krogan will sort of turn up. And it's like... Or the worst one is, is where there are alien races where they can kind of, like... Um, like with Legion, who's the kind of Geth robot... You know, it's just like, oh, it's just another robot. You know, it's like we made another robot. Um, ah, well, maybe it's because I just I never lost those party because when I when I um, went to play the game with my own save file, I looked up how you avoid everyone dying, basically Mass Effect Two, because I didn't want them to die, and then um, basically just right. kind of like forged a scenario where they all survived. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's fine, but it, it, it's yeah, like the the way they do it isn't so much kind of like this story won't happen. It's like the stories will still happen in Mass Effect Three. It's just that they find like all these weird proxies, right? Um, so I imagine there is like a version of Mass Effect Three where if you killed off enough people, where it'd just be totally abstract, and <laughs> there'd be all these randos you've never ever met who have quite big dramatic moments, and you're like, all right, you know, very unearned. Um, <laughs> yeah you know it's like i will sacrifice myself and it's like sure i met you two minutes ago but okay <laughs> oh that's really funny i i don't i guess i'm not really aware of this because it just didn't happen in my playthrough like um that's funny though because yeah like you say you can end it so it's um, I've, I've seen the end cutscene where it's just you who escapes a suicide mission and then like um joker just looks really fucking like devastated as you fly away and uh the idea of trying to com- complete your mass effect journey after that with all those characters gone is just uh yeah, very odd. That's uh, yeah, very bizarre. But um, yeah, do you have any other highlights, Matthew, from the series you wanted uh, to shout? I mean, like, you know, it's it's very easy just to list a lot of the loyalty missions in Mass Effect Two because they're generally quite strong, and they ex- they explore like the characters or interesting kind of cultural elements of the species. Um, I really really like Sins of the Father, which is Thane's loyalty quest. Mm. Um, which is about basically his he's sort of this sort of lizardy assassin and he's trying to stop his son from being a lizardy assassin. It's kind of interesting because it's not an action-y mission. A lot of these missions are go to a place, kill loads of people and then have a difficult conversation. <laughs> but this one's more of like a detective mission. You go around the Citadel um, talking to people. Uh, you do like a police interrogation. You get to do a like good cop, bad cop thing. And it's just a lot of conversational stuff. I think it puts the writing to the forefront. I, I, one of the sort of the other reasons I really like Mass Effect Two's companions is, is while some of them factor into like these grand arcs that are like defining the universe. You know, like Morden's role with the genophage and everything's really important. I, I also I do like the characters who have like quite self-contained like personal issues. Not everything feels like the end of the world, which is arguably does and is in Mass Effect Three. Um, but yeah, the stuff with like Thane and Samara. Um, in two, I think is really nice. Just like solving family issues, but they can still end horribly. Is is quite a good format for a quest. Did you ever get Samara's daughter instead of her as a party member? No, I didn't. No, that seemed like a really interesting wrinkle of the second one too. Um, but yeah, is that Morinth? Yeah, that's right. Um, and it never it never happened for me. But I um, I understand that that can result in some quite interesting outcomes too. So um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, quite the thing. But yeah, I agree with you. Second one, definitely the loyalty missions come to mind. Um, like I say, I think the third one's got some very good goodbyes. I was uh, watching the cutscene this morning of uh, Garrus and Shepard on the Presidium doing target practice, which is 
a moment I remember really well from the third one because it is just like a, a gentle kind of character moment. Um, mm. And you can like uh, choose whether to sort of like make a shot during target practice and get different responses from Garrus. And it's just a really good distillation of your relationship with that character. Um, mm. There's a few moments like that, yeah. Um, I won't I won't spoil all of them because um, they'll come up. I'm sure, they'll come up in our companion chat very shortly. But yeah, mm. I think that um, the Kasumi DLC is something I will spotlight there. I think that um, it's a shame you didn't play this because, like I say, you're basically Shepard is in a suit. He's going to like a mansion oh. for a party, and like you're casing the joint. So um, Kasumi, your companion, can basically steal something, I believe, and get revenge for her um, her lover being killed. So it's um, a really, really good again, like a TV episode, but like so memorable as a premise. Oh, I love party. I mean, one of my favorite bits in Inquisition is when you go to that foreign court and you have to kind of do the sort of you know follow all the weird um, protocols there of like high society. I love any mission where you get to get rid of your armor and wear some silly suit for 20 minutes is good. Yeah, I think that this is why you should definitely, if you haven't played the DLC, Matthew, the Citadel DLC is almost like a kind of like epilogue for the uh, for Mass Effect series. It's like it is like a true, yeah. it's a true goodbye to all these characters you've known very well. So if you do go through this trilogy again, I think you'll find that a really satisfying way to kind of cap off your relationship with those characters. Yeah. I think I've I've watched some of it in like cutscenes and things. I just don't know why I didn't. Because yeah, Mass Effect Three, like I played it when it came out. I didn't even play. I've I haven't played the extended ending or anything like that. I've just played it as it was on day one. Hmm. Let's do the ending chat then, Matthew. So, Mass Effect Three, the ending of that game, obviously very contentious. Uh, when it happened, when it really when the game released, it immediately got heated response from players who didn't feel that the ending paid off enough of their choices it resulted in a lot of like crybabying on social media and bioware eventually basically changing the ending to have an extended version including recording new music and showing different outcomes for your party members and stuff like that so i mean i I feel like this point has been made before but this does feel like a very significant moment in the kind of like history of bad online discourse in terms of (laughs) basically like complete dickheads getting like what they want and Mm. it's that thing where i don't think the ending to mass effect 3 is perfect maybe it's because i'm just not i'm not that plot minded a person and so it didn't like i'm more character minded as a person i like seeing like i said character resolutions meant more to me than a resolution to this big overarching story i think mass effect 3 is a finale to the series worked because you do feel the stakes of the Reaper attack, and it does feel like these these choices are like life changing. It's just maybe like that last decision is quite binary. There's like you know basically two buttons to press and then two outcomes that happen. But I can't say I found it particularly unsatisfying, and I think there are like lines to be drawn between what happens at this point when this launches and like what happens with the Last Jedi, what happens with arguably GamerGate a few years later. And what happens with kind of people's general in gaming, it kind of normalizing really toxic discourse like all the time as a kind of like constant mm. thing in like our lives. Like just this week, there's lots of bad bad chatter around Returnal from lots of accounts that I have muted, or like you know, you know what I mean. Just it just feels <laughs> yeah. like it's normalized just this bad discussion around games, and we're kind of stuck with it permanently. What do you think of all that? 
Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I kind of agree with you on all those points. Um, like now, because it's not something I particularly like want to relive and go back to. So I have quite hazy memory of like the specifics of the complaint at the time. But, um, you know, I, I, I remember feeling that, you know, you know, what people are looking for is, is just uh, so unlikely, you know, that the, these games, which are going to be like, in this particular case, a game which is going to be incredibly reactive to like everything you've ever done. Um, the game, you know, of, of all the series I've played, I mean, it's arguably one of, the, you know, one of the strongest in terms of delivering on consequences and a game which has so many choices that you know with every choice with every branching path it becomes more and more complicated it becomes more and more unsteady you have this sort of like um sort of consequence uncanny valley i think where the more the kind of you offer kind of reactive material the more people want and the kind of the more grievous it feels when it doesn't behave in a reactive way um, so I think this is a game that like ninety percent delivers on kind of what it what it wanted to, but maybe it doesn't right at the end. But I would also say, show me the game which does. I mean, there's there's very few games based on consequences, consequences and choices that stick the landing. Mm. Um, you know, I, you know, in terms of the button A or button B, I mean, I remember feeling the similar way about um, the when they re, re, rebooted Deus Ex. I always get them confused which one came first. Um, Human Revolution. Human Revolution. Yeah, that was the same. Like that gets to the end. It's just like, which of these three things are you going to be? And you're like, all right. Uh, you know, it's underwhelming. But then endings are underwhelming. Uh, maybe the bigger point is maybe you just don't like endings. You know, <laughs> because most things end poorly. But I think that might just be because they end and you don't like it. Um, you know, I can maybe name like two or three TV shows which like absolutely delivered after like 10 years which are those it's so rare it's impossible to do it's just a hard thing to do you you know it, to 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 deliver emotionally satisfying conclusions to 100 hour stories there's not many books that do it you know it's it's just it's it's difficult um but you're right it, it you know i'd say that that's true of like a lot of art forms unfortunately it happened in a particular art form which has got a teenage audience which isn't kind of particularly prepared mentally for those kind of challenges um, yeah, which is where this, the discourse comes from. Yeah. It does stink. No, please go on. No, no I was just saying it stinks, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, everyone gets upset about, about the ending. You go, oh, well, you move on. I mean, the flip side is, if you absolutely do deliver, it is like the best thing ever. I mean, some of my favourite pop culture experiences are the ones which see it through to the ending, but there are so few of them. I know it's hard, like, uh, you know, I've just come to it and not expect it. Yeah, so I think that in many ways, actually, this ending is a victim of the fact that players had never found themselves this invested in a story before in a game. And yeah, I, again, like I say, I think that Mass Effect is a is a trilogy that's about smoke and mirrors in a lot of ways. It's about making those choices feel meaningful. What's really interesting about Mass Effect Two as an ending is because you know, as we've discussed, it's kind of like an open ending. It can let all your characters die. In some ways, that's like um, the most satisfying like ending for a kind of for an RPG because it allows all these different permutations and the consequences mm. are kind of like felt in real time. Um, it's a bit harder to do when you're trying to resolve this one big story that basically links all three of these games. And um, yeah, I kind of I can see sort of I, I don't yeah I, I could just see how it how it ends up like panning out this way. 
And um, it reminds me too, actually, Matthew, I mean, this was right around the time as well that um, a few years after Battlestar Galactica had ended and Lost had ended. So those Mm. are both TV shows with terrible endings, like, um, Mm. or at least like poorly received endings. Like not everyone hates those endings and fair enough. Battlestar Galactica had a completely baffling ending. I don't really get it at all. But um, it hasn't really soured my kind of like impression of it overall. And also, I don't think like the fan response was that bad. But maybe that's because, like you say, a little bit older, a little bit more trained into potentially being disappointed when a really kind of big weighty sci-fi story doesn't entirely pay off. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, tricky. That's the thing. I just, I just feel if you've got a wider, more balanced diet, this wouldn't come as a surprise that it's that it's hard to do these things. Um I just think it speaks to a lot of gamers who have gaming as as like the cornerstone of their personality. I mean, that's just, it's just bound to happen. Has it, what is the most satisfying ending for you in pop culture? I know it's a bit of a tough question just to what? to launch into. Well, actually, I, I will give that a tiny bit of thought. But why don't you tell me what you think like the two or so TV shows are that have like perfect endings? Are I'm really curious. So for me, perfect ending TV is The Shield. Oh, I do. Um, I know about that ending. That is a grim ending, yeah, which right? I won't spoil. But absolutely, like that, that the character arc, what he goes through, what he gets at the end of it, is is one hundred percent what should happen to that character. Um, still a little open ended, but everything's wrapped up, and like I don't know, it feels that sort of some kind of big moral justice has been served. It's very uh, I, the Shield. I think is a spectacularly good show start to finish um and that is a show which is about choices and consequences it's a big like snowball of like bad decisions adding up yeah it it it, yeah totally sticks the ending for me um the other one i'd say and i know not everyone's on board with this i think mad men i love the ending of mad men Mm. i think it's i think i think the last season's a little odd but i think the final notes of it are like brilliantly done yeah, I'd say for, for for my money in recent memory, shows that really did it. Yeah, I think there are sort of quite a few shows that are like amazing that have bad endings, like you say. So um, I was thinking about The Wire, for example, which I know you just started watching. I mm. think that the final season is generally considered like the weakest. It has like probably the most outlandish premise of the um, the whole show, and so mm. and I think it does end in a, it just sort of like ends. It's quite a quite a sort of like it just sort of goes away a little bit i don't think it has like a really satisfying conclusion um in a way though i think it doesn't matter because each season of that show is so self-contained that um it's got uh, characters numerous characters throughout the show have very satisfying endings i would say Hmm. um i agree with you on mad men i think that the american office has a really good ending i don't think yeah i mean it's 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 shit for about three seasons before that but the actual two-part episode where they... Um, well, you're not a fan of Robert California. Uh, is, he, is he a favourite of yours? It, it, it's not... <laughs> no, it's all right. Either, we just rewatched all of The Office right. uh, over, over the last few months. And I actually think the last seasons weren't as, weren't as terrible as I remembered. They're definitely not as good. There's, there's a few like killer episodes. The last season's actually pretty good. The premise of that ending is actually like... Would have would have even worked perfectly a couple of seasons before if it had ended earlier. Yeah. Um, even though it does make the most of the fact that they've got this big cast of characters at that point, I do think that yeah, it's a really good two parter to just sort of cap it off with a few a bunch of key character moments. It's so good, in fact, that I feel like Greg Daniels probably came up with it years before they ended the show and was like, right, this mm. is how it will end, and this is how it'll be like emotionally satisfying. Yeah, I don't know. I think this is a really weird one, but um, the original ending to Scrubs is quite good. 
Um, oh, I don't think I ever saw it through. <laughs> uh, well, neither did I. I didn't see all of it, but I saw the last episode where um, the main character walks down like a corridor and sees loads of like old patients. He um, he uh, basically treated as he prepares to leave the hospital forever. So all these people like that he had life experiences with just sort of um, emerge in oh. this kind of grand flashback, and it's quite. And then there's like this quite um, uh, sort of uh, I guess like emotionally manipulative footage of um, what happens to JD the main character after that. It kind of flashes forward, and it's it's quite considered pretty good. And I don't think Scrubs is a great show. Let me make that very clear. But um, <laughs> that's quite satisfying. Uh, yeah, I don't I, know. I, like uh, again, I like as much as I dunk on it, I did think the the last uh, Avengers film was a pretty good tie up for everything of you know like i know it's i know they're making more marvel things but the whatever it was was it end game is that the last one yeah that's right yeah like in terms of the end feels quite crowd pleasing you know the, the the pair of those films feel like they they give a lot of people their little shot i mean it kind of is the end of a thing it feels like the end of a particular era um that was that was you know that's a, it's a big that's a big crowd pleasing version of of that yeah for sure and um the uh the only other one that i would draw attention to is the ending to the buffy spin-off angel which i quite liked um <laughs> it's a really grim ending where basically all of the main characters are doomed they are fighting like an unstoppable force and it's kind of like the um uh butch cassidy sort of ending it's very similar oh, okay very similar sort of vibe and um definitely like broke my brain at the time because you literally never find out what happens to the characters whether they survived or not but it's a good um it's a good finale but yeah i don't know when it comes to these um to draw it back to mass Effect, when it comes to like yeah. big weighty <laughs> sci-fi stuff i can't really think of anything but then i wasn't like a big star trek guy so i don't know maybe like um i know that tng has an ending that i think is quite well regarded for example but um but that's not really yeah, the same I th- genre. I think of a lot of sci-fi can just sort of go a bit galaxy brain at the end, and then it's kind of like, well, there you go. But isn't that the nature of the universe? And yep. you're like, yep. Yeah. Or it all ends up, you know, just someone getting their mind zonked out in a light tunnel, and you're like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm not really into endings that are like we've kind of merged, we've become gods, or or any of that stuff. Or like, yeah, yeah, we've turned it's, into it's, pure. It's light. hard. It's 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 hard to have a quite like to find like a human relatable ending in a universe built on like ideas beyond human comprehension yeah uh, but what can you do yeah all right then matthew so i've got one last question about mass effect before we move on to our companions which is yeah. mass effect andromeda is something we've talked about before we talked about it a bit on this podcast do you have any further thoughts on that game and do you think there's anything that's kind of like worth salvaging from it or is it worth kind of like picking up again for people who might have bounced off it the first time I mean, the, the, the general concept of the thing of like, you know, going out and 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 you know, meeting f- you know faces, uh, you know, of the uh, threats unknown, and you know, it, it, that's that's like more of a sort of Star Trek fantasy um, than the other Mass Effect. So, and the other thing that they, you know, the, the previous trilogy, everything's quite well established when it starts, and I think the promise of Andromeda and what it doesn't deliver on, but the promise is, is still a good one, is like. You know, it's all these elements, you know, kind of interacting with something kind of new, you know, what what do truly new alien worlds and, you know, new alien species look like? And unfortunately, the answers they came up with were just really boring. It was just like two tribes of people with like dog faces. And you're like, great. It's like the dog men. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> awesome. What a waste of time. We came all this way. Yeah, it loses me so quickly 
Andromeda by having that moment where you meet the um, one of the alien species on that planet at the start. And then, like, you're opening fire on each other straight away. I was like, oh, this is bad. This is, like... I feel like the original Mass Effect trilogy wouldn't have done this. It would have had... Yeah. There would I have mean, been further it, context. Like, but but that, that the, the whole concept of, like, everyone's come together, you know, the, the downside to it is it's like, a, you know, the society you bring with you is presumably pretty stable. So there's not a lot of, like, interesting stuff to explore within that society. So it's entirely about, like, what you find. All the side quests are basically about establishing better living conditions in this in this new world in this new solar system and that's uh you know you need history for like interesting kind of quests to kind of emerge from like that's what's great about mass effect 2 is you're basically stepping into the the end of lots of stories which have been playing out for a long time and basically need some resolution and that's what shepherd is his whole job is to go in and basically put an end to people's sort of epic kind of conflicts but there's no time for those conflicts to actually develop in andromeda like no one has them because their conflict is oh fuck where the fuck are we like how how do i you know breathe air on this planet that isn't an interesting problem from a kind of like dilemma point of view what, what might have been more interesting is if they did something like a similar premise to andromeda where all these um basically these desperation kind of moves to um create uh to move kind of like the different alien species and humanity elsewhere in the universe kind of goes wrong and then it becomes a bit more sort of like firefly or mad maxi where it's kind of like everyone's it's a a few hundred years have passed and and people are really struggling just to survive in this um in this galaxy and and so all the kind of different tensions between the um species are much hotter than they are in um yeah the first mass like something something like that just very different you know you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, there there are hints and there are elements of like you know certain ships got there earlier, and it's the idea of like what what difference does like time make to this sort of society that we already know? You know, if some people turn up and basically anoint themselves kings, you know, what does that happen? You know, what happens to everyone else? That could have been great, but uh, sadly, no giant empty barren ice planet instead that's what we get <laughs> yeah um, there's one good bit on that big ice planet actually is that if you look under the ice there are these like giant fish swimming under the ice which is quite cool visually but i mean i wouldn't spend 60 quid just to see a giant fish well you'll never have to spend 60 quid to play mass Effect andromeda these days um yeah you'd be lucky <laughs> if you have to spend more than eight quid so um yeah, i don't know if i'd spend eight quid to see a giant fish <laughs> maybe just look it up on youtube um see <laughs> yeah. the giant fish that sounds cool. Yeah, I was meant to play it, but um, yeah, I just couldn't. I couldn't get past that first like bit where you go to your ship and you're having loads of boring conversations, and it's quite clear early on, like you say, that the companions are just really weak. I'm like, oh, I I, I hate all of you, and I have to spend like forty hours with you. That's not good. So yeah, I, I would kind of like them to roll the maybe roll the dice again on this premise and see what happens when you know Mass Effect starts somewhere else again, but you have a bit more of a kind mm. of hook to it. My fear is. They'll end up doing another Shepherd story somehow, and like no one needs that. That is, if mm. another Mass Effect game even gets made in our lifetimes, which who knows? It, uh, we haven't even got a new Dragon Age yet, so it could be a while. Mm. In which case, Matthew, then I feel like we've talked about the series pretty comprehensively. There, let's uh, mm. take a short break, and then we'll come back and do our top ten Mass Effect companions. Matthew, welcome back. 
people have listened to some really nice uh, Mass Effect music, I'm sure, at this point, that I've ripped off of YouTube, and, um, you know, they're back to hear us talk about the top ten Mass Effect companions. So, uh, our process here, Matthew, is a little bit similar to our Hitman Levels episode, right? We basically mm-hmm. had a spreadsheet, and we put down, like, one to ten of our favourites, um, added them together, and uh, and here we are. Um, before we kind of jump into the order, then, I wondered if you had any thoughts on, like, how I voted, and um, anything you found particularly objectionable. No, not not really. Like I, f- I feel we're we're actually. Uh, I felt like we were coming from a similar place. I could see a lot of myself in your decisions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't really have a grasp of. You know, is there consensus? I don't know. I like you know. I, I was looking at a few lists online, and there seemed to be, uh, you know, quite some different choices in there, which I guess speaks to the strength of the characters. Um, one thing I would say is that I think people's perception of these companions can be dramatically altered by just, like, what happens to them or how far they get in the trilogy. Like, some characters become weaker as they go on. Others get stronger. Um, they might just die, and in your head, they're just that terrible character from Mass Effect 1. So that's that's another interesting wrinkle. Like, just even our versions of the characters may be a bit different. Yeah, I sort of... Um, I've never met anyone who's um, kept Kaid and Elenko alive, for example... <laughs> And I would love to know, like, probably because I mostly know men. That's the real reason. I know, like, nerdy straight men. Those are the people I know mostly. But, yeah, I'd love to know what, like, does the Kaiden stuff pay off in Mass Effect 3? Is Kaiden, like, oh, my God, Kaiden. He's, like, the best, the most, the richest, most well-developed character ever. And instead I was just like, well, I'm I, I, I'm having nothing to do with him. I, just a complete non-event of a man to me. But, um, yeah. There's, um, yeah, I think there's a bit of a consensus on, like, a couple of these. Like, our number one is quite a safe one, I would say. But, um, okay. Uh, and our number three, I think, is um, slightly embarrassing. But um, we'll get to that. <laughs> no, I, no. <laughs> I'm passionate about this choice. Okay, all right. Let's kick off with number ten, then. So, we've got Tally at number ten, Matthew who uh, appears in all three Mass Effect games, which is actually quite rare for um, a companion mm. in this uh, series. So, uh, yeah, Tally's kind of, like, um, whole thing is that she's sort of, like, a member of her kind of, like, alien sect, right? And she's just, I don't know, she's just, just quite nice, Tally. I don't really have, like, really strong feelings on her. I just thought, See, yeah. See, this, this, this was the only one of yours where I'm, like, I don't really care for Tally. Like, I didn't put any votes into Tally. She, of, of all the reoccurring characters, she's my least favourite by quite a distance. Hmm. Mainly because I find there's something... About, I, she's a good... She's, like, quite a pure good character, there's not a lot of conflict in her, and because I also play a paragon shepherd, you know, as pure a paragon as you can possibly be, basically, there's there's nothing really interesting between them. There's no spark. A lot of these characters become a bit more interesting if they disagree with you, and unfortunately, she's also like probably the closest thing to a purely good person, um, which which is to a disadvantage. Also, like there's just something unknowable about her because she wears that sort of visor. I'm not particularly into her kind of like that kind of. Are they, is she a quarian? Yeah, that's right, a quarian. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, of of all the overarching stories, the quarian kind of get stuff is not my favourite stuff. And um, I think she met quite a bad ending, if I remember correctly, in my Mass Effect three, which I was like, yeah, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm fairly, I'm fairly referred to, uh, referred to it. She looks, she reminds me a bit of a Dyson vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, her visor. 
surely, surely those little kind of obese alien men are more like Dyson vacuum cleaners than um, the Quarians are. I don't know. They're more like Henrys. <laughs> I suppose they are, yeah. Jesus. Do you think Mass Effect secretly based everyone on a different <laughs> brand of Hoover? What I find funnier is that you managed to find a way to bring up Dyson vacuum cleaners in every episode of this podcast now. That's like a common it's thing. It's a major trauma for me. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I suppose actually like maybe I've shown myself up here by not having loads to say about Tally, but... I think that I, I, I like the Quarry and Geth thing more than you. And that, um, what happens with her can happen with her and Legion in the third game is quite interesting. Is that what you're referring to when you say about yeah, how? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it got pretty bleak. <laughs> Were you just like willing Tally to die, basically? No, not really. Uh, I don't think, I don't think I was that malicious. I just didn't really, I didn't really care for her. Um, I will say though, outside of this top 10, there's a general kind of sort of, um, mass of, Slightly unimpressive human companions who didn't make the cut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who didn't even get like Humans a definitely have the short end of the stick in this one, in, in this series. Like, you... they just don't have a lot going for them. Yeah, it's very true. Oh, God, like, uh, now that we're, we're doing this, I don't have anything more to say about Tally. Maybe I just think she's quite nice. I like the idea that you can romance her and that it's not, like, necessarily based on sort of, like, physical uh, romance. It's more like a sort of human uh, kind of connection. Um, and sort mm. of like finding emotional middle ground or whatever. But uh, do I truly find that interesting? Not when I was making horny choices in my early twenties. Yeah, I, I like I like the I like the bad girls of Mass Effect. <laughs> Is that a calendar that you own? Um. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Okay, so um, number nine. This is a Samuel Roberts choice because Matthew has never met this character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh, uh, Kasumi, the um, Mass Effect DLC character. So um, I liked her as a thoughtful addition to Mass Effect 2's roster. I think that um, even though Zaid is kind of like a bit, uh, I think his quest is perfectly fine, and he's good to have along. It's nice to have another option of a, a character you can um, add to your party. I think Kasumi was. Um, a legit inclusion like her her backstory is really really sad and the game does a really good job of like throwing Shepard into her life to help her resolve this thing basically her mission is like a loyalty mission and mm. um yeah and she's um she can turn invisible as well which makes her quite cool in um in battle she's like got quite a specific sort of move set i always like to have oh, her cool. in my party so um yeah i'd recommend actually adding her to your party when you um play it again matthew but um yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I understand that she can also turn up again in Mass Effect Three, but for whatever reason, I could never find her again in Mass Effect Three. I wonder. That, if, I, yeah. I, I will say one of the downsides with with this game putting some characters in DLC is that because of that, they also then don't really have much to do beyond their specific DLC content, from what I've read. Anyway, I mean, it was definitely true of Zaid. He's just like turns up and then. He's just like lurking around. Like he, he hasn't got much interesting to say on the story. Yes, that's that is probably fair to say. Like, um, I think they do they do like weigh in on the cutscenes and stuff, though. They do like they can play a part when when they're added to the story. They do they do just feature in he's the just, cutscenes. He's just always moaning about his eye the whole time, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, right, it's a suicide mission. He's like, my poor eye, and everyone's like, oh, now's not the time. So we'll stay Zaid. stay home then, Zaid. Jesus, or you're going in the tunnels, mate. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I like Kasumi. I think uh, that's probably fair. I think there is like a level of um, interaction you can have with your companions in Mass Effect 2 that Zaid and Kasumi don't have. Like, um, mm. they just have like one line of dialogue when you talk to them on the Normandy, basically. So, um, yeah. My eye! My eye! <laughs> <laughs> um, number eight, then, Matthew, is one of your votes, um, Samara. Yeah, um, 
So she is a. I want to say she's a just a just a car. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I get a little. Sometimes I worry these are terminologies from Dragon Age. I'm getting things confused. Um, she's basically been sort of hunting her daughter for I think it's like thousands of years. They live for ages. Yeah. So she's got this sort of mad sort of like Shakespearean loyalty quest of of sort of hunting down this this uh, Morinth character who. Yeah, as we've said, based on the decision you make, um, can then basically replace Samara in the game. Um, I just, I just, uh, a lot of these characters just had great loyalty quests and they really lodged in my head. They didn't really do much or contribute much to the wider story beyond that, um, but they kind of turn up, they basically represent like an interesting wrinkle in their their species kind of history or culture in this case like her sort of religious duties to to track her track down her daughter um yeah i just remember thinking oh yeah that's kind of cool i like the idea of being vengeful for hundreds if not thousands of years that's a interesting place to come from yeah that is that is thoughtful there's a lot of um with these characters there's a lot of um either parents um dealing with their troubled children or uh, children dealing with their troubled parents right that's yeah. like a recurring theme in um particularly mass effect 2 i would say yeah yeah and now now i'm looking at this list i'm like that's 100 percent what the game's about why didn't i see that that's weird <laughs> yeah um so yeah i um that's a that's a good choice i, I can't say like i remember loads about samara other than just thinking she was like a a a cool presence and like enjoying how that storyline with the daughter plays out because her daughter does seem like a real fucking nasty piece of work when you catch up with her um (laughs) so yeah and like that yeah like i say the fact that you can you can switch her for her daughter is also uh, quite nasty so um yeah interesting stuff number seven there matthew let's get into it so ashley williams is number seven now, yeah. you on a previous podcast did diss me for, um, you know, romancing the space racist. And yet, you have also voted for the space racist in this um, this uh, poll. So, uh, what was your thinking there? Um, I, well, a lot of my thinking with Ashley Williams isn't particularly, li- like, lived. I mean, she, she did survive in my game. Um, I didn't have, like, vast amounts to, to do with her. The with, uh, But Ashley and Kaiden, both of them are... are in Mass Effect 2, like, super weird, like, how they react and kind of interact with you. Um, given that you're, like, basically back from the dead, uh, you know, they're quite dismissive of you, if I remember correctly, when you meet them. Yeah, Ashley Williams, like, I don't know, she has a bit... I think the, the problem with Ashley Williams is she makes a really stinking first impression, and if you do bump her off in Mass Effect 1, that's all she'll ever be, is that, is that stinking impression. But there's a bit more depth to her. There's a bit more warmth to her. Uh, when I was working on OXM, we got Chris Thurston to write us a very good piece on, like, in defence of Ashley Williams for our back section of the mag. And he was talking about how she was, like, one of the few characters who was, like, a bit more self-sufficient and doesn't, like, particularly rely on Shepard, doesn't particularly need Shepard. You know, she doesn't, like, need sort of saving in any major way, um, apart from that massive bomb. So, yeah, and I think that's that's fair. I mean... Of of the sort of the non-event human characters, she's she's actually one of the better ones in the long term. Yeah, it's um I think that what they do in uh, Mass Effect Two with her is actually really good. So oh, <laughs> well I think that um basically obviously she can't be a party member. So you meet her in a side quest, and then my my memory of this is that she was quite upset that you're working for Cerberus, um and then you kind of fall out, and then that's kind of the end of that interaction. And like oh, this, see, I just. I just remember in like 
basically being like, no, I won't join your group and being quite miffed about it. But I don't really remember why. That does make sense. Yeah, I think it was Cerberus <laughs> that she's, yeah, she's basically upset with that element just because Cerberus, uh, even within like humanity, are quite a controversial um, organisation. So I believe that's like the reason that there's um, there's tension there. And so, uh, yeah, no, I, I remember that being quite good. I also really liked the, the way that... Um, characters who were in your party in the first one would then turn up in the second one and they're kind of like oh well what's going on with you now kind of thing like that's um mm. that's something that you can only do in a trilogy like this where you know you're going to have a next installment to um and, and, yeah. and you have a plan for where the different characters are going to pop up again that's a cool cool feature of mass effect for sure the the, the, the and the fact that it has this like two-year time jump i mean that's that's a trope i love it when tv shows do a big time jump and then like everything's changed and you get that like bedding in period where you're working out like who everyone is now you know a few years later that's always really satisfying it's it's really it's done really well in mass effect 2 yeah i liked her again in mass effect 3 but she wasn't my ultimate romance choice um we'll get to that um (laughs) but i did romance her in the first one but uh yeah that's interesting is that um chris thurston piece online anywhere is that on games radar i think it's on games radar actually yeah oh nice people might want to check that out then i did think about asking chris on this podcast but uh he's got his own podcast i thought he might be busy that's my excuse um cool (laughs) so uh next up then matthew our number six is erdnot rex there's also like grunt who you get in mass effect 2 another character i like who's kind of like a sort of um made in a lab krogan and um mm. but rex is quite a good kind of well-rounded character like someone who you kind of um seems aggressive but then you find sort of common ground with i don't have like loads more to say about him but he's a bit like in that sort of um garris genre of party member where it's like oh he's like a, a alien alien buddy basically and um i think yeah. the game does a good job again of like um bringing him into the story in two before making him a party member again in three i thought it was just quite elegantly done and he had a good arc yeah yeah, no, I, yeah, I basically agree. The kind of like I'm not massively into kind of sort of like aggressive warrior tropey characters. Like mm. I very, I very rarely play with like sort of like berserker types or kind of rage warriors or whatever. Um, but he, yeah, he's he's actually like you know surprise surprise he's quite thoughtful underneath it all. Um, that's why I think that kind of choice in Mass Effect One to you know where you basically can like get rid of him from the game. Um, like you know, about halfway through, I, I would say that would be like quite a quite a major character to remove from the trilogy. He's one of the ones who, in Mass Effect Three, gets replaced with just like a real duffer, just like another Krogan prince, and it just carries so much more weight if if he's still in the mix. So um, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep him in play if you're playing it for the first time. Rex is good. I would say by contrast to the Vermeer choice, which I think is very good, I actually think that the Rex choice in Mass Effect 1 feels a bit more forced. It's a bit more okay. like... I mean, it's a it's a kind of tense moment because there is that thing of like... I think you kind of know as a player that if you choose this option, then that's basically it for you and Rex. So um, it definitely registers in terms of being a powerful moment, but... I think their conflict, I remember the conflict feeling slightly contrived as a way to try and like get you to basically pull the trigger on like what happens if you this you and this party member like completely break away and I wasn't um, Yeah, I think yeah. I, th- I think it's more I think the more likely negative outcome is that Ashley does the killing. Oh, she's geez. she's like well up for it. She's a nasty piece of work. <laughs> oh my god, I actually didn't know that. That's um Yeah, I think yeah. she shoots him in the back like to, to sort of like defend you. Right, and you wouldn't actually have done it. Uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the outcomes, anyway, because that's 
Ashley's secret. Yeah, that's the whole space races thing. She's a little keen when it comes to shooting non-humans. <laughs> Maybe we should publish a follow-up op-ed saying, no, actually, Ashley Williams is a big space racist. Um <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I, maybe I'm mis- maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think that's the case. <laughs> yeah. So next up, we've got Morden Solas, an unbelievably good char- uh, character. So basically, someone who is responsible, partly responsible for you know, like a sort of genocide of an alien species, trying to make amends, and fundamentally, an extremely nice and kind of like likable character. It's just a really a really rich creation. I think. What about you? Yeah, I this this. There's some bits of this character where, like, alarm bells ring that this is going to be someone I'm not going to get on with. He's kind of the the super intellectual, kind of funny intellectual character, which a lot of geeks like to imagine themselves to be. Mm. You know, he drops all these references, and he's very kind of cutting and funny, and he, like, quotes Gilbert and Sullivan. And I, I, like, I kind of know people in real life who are a bit like this yeah, in terms of it's that sort of the really arch they know how clever they are and it's it very it, like it's like a it's like the cool nerd trope it's it's it, this character could have been horrible but actually um yeah like his his weird speech patterns the the vo- the vocal performance is brilliant um the dilemma at the heart of his character is is great cuz he's kind of what i like about him is he is like maybe a bit evil like it's it's a little murky but he's really likable um, I had him in my party loads in Mass Effect 2 probably like my like number one buddy I remember him having lots of like fiery attacks he was like a fiery dude um, mm. I think I think that's right yeah, um, yeah and, and, and the conclusion to his story in, in, in Mass Effect 3 is, is really really well done um, yeah it's a, a great a, a great a really great character really strong I should have maybe voted this even higher but yeah. Yeah, same actually. I wonder if this should have been higher than the um, number four we've got here. But um, yeah, he's just definitely one of my favourites. I think that loyalty mission really um, cracks his like story open as well. Um, mm. In the second one, like that's how you find out the true nature of um, how he's involved in the genophage and you know the kind of like uh, the uh, the prospect of can he reverse it and how how does he feel about it in, inside and. Obviously, people also remember the um, Gilbert and Sullivan moment with him in Mass Effect 2, which I never saw, to be honest. Um, that didn't come yeah. up in my interactions. But I, I agree, it's a really nice bit of characterization. And mm. uh, yeah, that's got to be like, when I was looking at the best Mass Effect moments for this podcast, the um, the end, his ending is, you know, one of the top five in like basically every list. So um, mm. that's a pretty amazing thing to kind of pull off with a character who's basically just like a, a companion who, um, yeah, mm. like I say, might die in um, Mass Effect 2 and I assume be replaced by a Naffa version in Mass Effect 3. Um, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> Dave Solus, yeah. <laughs> Dave. Who also sings Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> but worse. And you're like, oh, too soon, Dave, too soon. <laughs> but in a Cockney accent. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, number four, Matthew, is Liara. So Liara I put down here. I vote for Liara because I am very, very fond of how this portrays... Uh, if you play the male shepherd, your friendship with Liara is really well done. Like, if you don't romance her, um, the fact that she pops up again in the Shadow Broker DLC... In, in Mass Effect 2 um, I don't know I just felt like a real kind of like warmth and I felt like a friendship between a male and ostensibly female character uh, just rarely done this well and then the fact that I don't know if you got you unlocked this I assume you probably I, I assume that all players can see it but the mind meld thing she does in Mass Effect 3 right before the mm. end of the game is like a, a beautiful moment like a really great bit of storytelling mm. do, do you have much kind of memory of her? 
Yeah, I mean, I felt very similar. I I, I think she's got a, a really good, like, individual arc through the three games. I haven't done the Shadow Broker DLC, but, you know, the, 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 the two years change has been quite, you know, the two years, you know, changed her a fair amount. Um, yeah, I, I think, like, in a way, she gets right what Tally doesn't for me in that she just sort of changes and evolves. There's a bit more kind of going on. But she also she's just a face that you bring through the whole thing. So by the end, you're you're like super attached to her. Um, you know those those original crew members. They just have that natural advantage over everyone else because of the history. But yeah, just a, a, yeah, a super nice presence. Yeah, also um, voiced very well by uh, Ali Hillis, who played um, uh, Lightning in the Final Fantasy Thirteen games. So um, oh, okay. once you once you hear that, you can't unhear how similar those voices are. Um, right, but yeah, very well developed um, relationship there. Okay, number three is uh, Miranda Lawson. So Miranda getting this high is what happens when um, two boys who are watching Chuck in like two thousand seven or eight, <laughs> and were probably slightly too horny, get to vote for their favourite Mass Effect character. Would you say that's fair, Matthew? Uh, well, I'd say there's a hint of that. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'd say it's unfortunate that. Like she's she is a really great, interesting character. She's got a really interesting backstory. The fact that she's a Cerberus person puts her like in a really like murky, interesting place in Mass Effect Two with regards to Shepard. But on top of that, like she is this stunningly beautiful character, and the game like really ogles her and gives her like the most ludicrous, like shiny outfit that just sort of accentuates. I mean, she's like <laughs> the the, the one of the things that's happened in Legendary is they've apparently like dialed down some of the the, the endless sort of camera focusing on her butt in cutscenes, mm. um, which caused a minor upset of like mm, censorship. But I think they've just raised the camera a bit because there's like bits where she's telling you about her tragic backstory and the camera's like ass, <laughs> which is just super inappropriate. I I, th- I I think there's I think there's way more to this character than just you know this really kind of sort of gorgeous sort of love interest on the ship um so i don't feel too embarrassed (laughs) no i think that she's a good character too like she was very firmly like my sort of main romance option i think that when you first meet her like you say she's working for cerberus so you're not entirely sure she's like um hero or villain and then uh, over time you unpick this relationship that she has with her sister and her father this very kind of it's a strange tense relationship that is mm. built on very, very well in Mass Effect 3. Like, I would say that her... The kind of, like, how her story can pan out in Mass Effect 3 is really, really good, even though she's not a companion. Her mission definitely feels, like, meaningful, I would say. And, yeah, yeah, I think that it does have that slightly, like, naff kind of justification of I've got physical augmentations that mean my butt is so big or whatever. I think there's, like, that <laughs> element to the character, right? That she's, like, I've been well, sort of augmented. Be, yeah, like, this sort of per- like basically perfect person. Yeah, um, which is quite a compliment that they like based her on, you know. She's clearly modelled after the actress, right? Yeah, Yvonne Strahovski, who, um, yeah. yeah, like I say, was in Chuck and is um, now seen in The Handmaid's Tale and is very good in that, actually. Um, very different if you're a fan of Chuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very, a very, different. very different energy. It's almost like so. it's almost like punishment if you watch Chuck. I would say. Um, <laughs> I would say, call your jets if you come into this from Chuck. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, It's punishment. (laughs) I might have to cut that because it sounds so bad. (laughs) 
I think I do have to cut that because it makes me sound so awful. Oh, <laughs> no, it's fine. That's funny. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I think like um, I think horny young men must eventually be punished though, in a kind of like Old <laughs> yeah. Testament sort of way. And like the Handmaid's <laughs> yeah. Tale brings you that. I think. Uh, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah, the story with her sister and her her dad. Very well done. She's not, you know. Yes. 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 <laughs> We voted for her because of her parental strife. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. That's enough about that. Um, That's that's our story. Yeah. So, number two is Thane Krios, Matthew. So, Mm. uh, like you say, a dying assassin who has a fraught relationship with his son. And um, you you didn't seem that keen on how his story pans out in Mass Effect 3, but I thought he was... um, I thought it was it was really well done, personally. Um, i just very sad when he dies. But how did you feel about Thane's journey in these games? Yeah, I, I think the, the thing... I just wanted him to be, like, a proper companion again. Like, I really liked him. I, I had him in my party quite a lot. Hmm. Um, I, I, I like the assassin. I like that he's kind of... His story is sort of outside of all the main drama. You know, he's a species that doesn't really appear anywhere else in the game. You know, he's quite a... Uh, like isolated presence because of that his backstory doesn't tie into like the fate of his entire you know of an entire species or anything it's it's very just him dealing with some stuff you know that obviously makes perfect sense in mass effect 2 where the game is built around a lot of self-contained stories maybe it you know it is harder to kind of give him a starring role in three because you know we're talking about like threats at a, at a much larger scale. Um, yeah, I was just sad that I didn't get to spend more time with him. That he spent most of it in a sort of wheezing in a hospital bed, dying of whatever his weird disease was. Um, yeah, I, that, that. But that's pure. Like as a fan, I wanted more. But then that puts me in the same camp as all the the whiny babies. So <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. I was the only one petitioning. They were like, change the ending. And then there's me going, and Thane, at the end <laughs> of the protest. <laughs> yeah. I think that um, Thane just speaks to the real strengths of um, how, uh, just how much Bioware nailed it with that Mass Effect 2 set of companions. Because um, the way he kind of like flashes back and remembers stuff is um, is quite, it's just very, a very effective device in Mass Effect 2 as well. Um, mm. Just like how he kind of processes information and how they get that across to you as a player. Side note: When I was watching the cutscenes, um, generally to um, refresh my memory on these games this morning, um, it's amazing how much like the um, the camera does a lot of the heavy lifting to make up for the fact that the um, the characters don't look like that human when they're you know in a, how, how they're sort of facially animated. They do look a bit kind of like puppets a lot of the time, and like you know there are bound to be limitations from the fact that these are old games and stuff like that. But the um, I guess cinematography, as it were, does so much heavy lifting in making these games like feel more kind of alive and more cinematic. Um, mm. Just like an a, amazing underrated sort of um, element of why these games have such good storytelling, I think. But um, yeah. But um, mm. I, I just remember those camera angles of um, when you talk to Thane on the uh, Normandy and Mass Effect 2 and how um, how they just serve to make him uh, sort of quite distinctive and in, in sort of like um, and in how thoughtful he is. A great character. Yeah. A, a, a amazing character model as well. Like the design of him and the look of him. I, I always remember thinking like some, you know, some of the humans now look pretty, pretty dated, but some of the weirder looking aliens are, are still like kind of up there in terms of kind of, uh, you know, emotive or interesting faces. I think at least until like the Witcher three comes along, which is like the next, the next level of that stuff. Mass Effect is like, 
a, a pretty high standard. Yeah, they built um they kind of built alien species who were like um would work on the Xbox 360, who would like look good when animated on that console. Yeah, lots of like hard like shining shells, not soft tech, they're very like hard crunchy bits. Yeah, yeah it's great. And the occasional Dyson vacuum cleaner comes and the occasional away. Dyson. <laughs> Imagine the ray tracing on her Dyson visor now. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Um so number 1 Matthew, a very predictable choice, but we've gone with Garrus. Um, everyone's favourite space buddy, uh, Garrus. Um, so, I have one thing I just really, really loved about Mass Effect Two, and there are uh, there's so many different things. But the way that Garrus is introduced into the story, that there is this kind of like warrior on Omega, I believe it is called like Archangel, I think he's called. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, who's this? He's like a legendary sniper and this kind of like figure of the underworld and stuff. And you meet him, and it's like it's only fucking Garrus. That was the kind of um vibe of it and i just remember that being like really really cool as a way to bring that character back into the story um yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely i mean that's that's like easily the best year of the kind of the best use of the time jump in terms of like to have a dramatic reveal of like oh shit it's garris he's this other dude he's sniping all these guys this is rad what a crowd pleaser moment a great a great guy i mean probably the most memed character in mass effect maybe triggers the kind of the meme culture you were talking about earlier, which has now kind of doomed all companions, in that he, he just seems to be this perfect combination of sort of funny quirks, habits, likes and dislikes that really stick with people. Everyone remembers, you know, he's, the little weird kind of catchphrases and the things he gets up to. I think it sort of helps as well that he's not like hugely tied personally to like any ma- major, major dilemma, at least not in my head anyway. You know he's 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 quite a he's free to be quite a kind of chill dude in Mass Effect. Yeah. So I was watching the um, that sequence I mentioned earlier where you're doing target practice with him on the Citadel, and like um, there's uh, one of the things you can say to him there is you know I- I'm glad that you're you're here with me basically like um, and he says something about how like um, at this time a lot of a lot of people are just like turning tail and running because the Reapers are coming, but you know who your friends are because they're you know, they've got your back during this time where the ultimate threat is coming down the pipe, essentially. Obviously, it's more mm. articulate than that because I'm just trying to remember it. And uh, coming down the pipe doesn't sound as good coming out of um, Shepherd, I don't think. But um, <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, it's um, it's a really kind of profound bit of like, I guess it, it, this is if you pick the uh, male Shepherd, but it's a really good bit of like male friendship in a game. And I think yeah, that yeah. I'm sort of like big into seeing like good wholesome male friendships in games and and in media generally because i don't think you see that many of them because um so much kind of like male friendship in pop culture is like based on sort of competition or um mm. or like being like uber masculine and never talking about your feelings and stuff and i think that mm. garris lets you have a bit of um a bit of that without it getting um a, a bit too kind of like final fantasy 15 where it's um you know maybe a bit more sort of like uh, melodramatic so uh yeah as a really mm. as a good kind of male friendship character i think he's a top creation yeah. i think a lot of the people who complained about the ending of mass effect 3 need a little garris in their lives <laughs> yeah exactly uh, i suppose if i was if i was playing if you were playing the female shepherd uh, matthew would you romance garris because i think i probably would to see how it pan out but um i wonder about what that says uh, about me i don't know probably not you couldn't romance i th- you couldn't there wasn't like cross species romance in the first one was there you couldn't it was Liara if you were... I think Liara oh, yeah. if you are male and female Shepherd. Right. But I don't think you could romance Garrus until Mass Effect 2. Yeah, I think that's I right, think. yeah. Yeah, uh, 
I don't know. Like we're mates, I wouldn't really want, wouldn't want to kind of complicate things. <laughs> oh, I see. I see how it is. Um, yeah, that's fair <laughs> enough. Um, yeah, so that's it. Those are our companions, Matthew. I think that's a pretty solid list, um, with the exception yes. of Tally, who I couldn't remember much about and probably should have just left out of the list. But yeah, so we decided that for Bioware to bring Mass Effect back to its glory days, they got to go super linear. It's got to have absolutely incredible graphics, but you don't have to be able to walk there. You can just look at it in the distance, and your party is made up of just Miranda, Thane, and Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're sort of good models for it. Um, yeah, so- and let the, let the 100% on Metacritic roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Matthew, we've done Mass Effect. Um, very comprehensive there. Uh, podcast slightly longer than I thought it would be, but that just seems to be the way with us. Yeah, got a few list of questions here too. So um, yeah, I'll. Uh, do you want to read out the first one? Yeah. Hi. Question about magazine writing. In general, which is slash was your preference between writing reviews for a personal favourite game, e.g. Mario Galaxy, with an expectation from the reader, or writing a piece that's much more throwaway with less expectation from the readers? Loving the podcast, which has quickly become my favourite listen of the week. Thank you very much, Aaron Stewart. So, I personally, I think that it would be a, a mix of the two is kind of um, ideal as a reviewer. I think it's good to be challenged to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. I think you need a sort of particular um, sort of specialty, uh, sometimes, or at least like some kind of affinity with a genre to review it. For example, I think I could review an arena shooter. I don't think I'm the best person to do it, but I could do it. And um, I could probably do it in a way where I'm like detached enough from the genre to um to be quite objective about it at the same time it's fun to review a game that you're super passionate about sometimes as long as the parameters in which you're reviewing it aren't too like over the top and you're i don't know Mm. trying to review breath of the world too in two days wouldn't be very fun for example but Mm. i'd love to have like i think having two weeks with breath of the world too that would be a fun review experience for sure um so yeah i think it's i think it's a a mix i guess i don't know if that's a useful answer what do you think yeah, I th- like it's difficult. The ones with expectation, like you have expectations as well, and you have expectations for your own review. I've talked about before. Like I get quite bogged down when when something's genuinely amazing and important, whatever that means. Um, I get quite stressed out about the review, about doing it justice, about wanting to do a game justice and trying to capture it. And that's not necessarily a very enjoyable writing experience. But those reviews can end up brilliantly sometimes. Like, I'm not going to say I get it right all the time. Where I feel a lot less pressure with things that, like, I'm not personally invested in. And and from that lack of pressure, like, some better reviews can flow, I think. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. What I want is a game with no expectations that comes out of nowhere and absolutely wows me. Those are kind of my favourite reviews to write. I like the, oh, wow, this is a surprise. This is surprisingly amazing. Those reviews I'm quite comfortable of. Yeah, I can think of a time that happened for me, actually. I, I, by the way, I cannot believe we're still talking about the process of reviewing games. Um, <laughs> like, we've done two whole podcasts on it. Well, three, arguably, and we're still doing it. But um, That's all right. I, don't, I like talking about it. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, so one of those, for me, would be um, Red Faction Guerrilla, which is a game that I had no real kind of uh, like opinion on when it... Um, it sort of rolled around in 2009. It was this quite brown-looking game. It's always set on Mars, so <laughs> it's only so kind of colourful you can make it, I guess. But um, couldn't work out why it was uh, what was interesting about it. Like, like kind of a, a naff six out of ten third-person shooter. Didn't realise it was entirely built on these destruction physics, which are incredibly fun. And then mm. that, that kind of comes along and takes my breath away. And um, 
I'm I'm suddenly much more into it than I thought it was going to be. So mm. uh, yeah, that was a good example of that, and I gave it like an eight out of ten. I just thought, oh wow, yeah. like uh, what a satisfying um, a satisfying experience that was as a reviewer. How about you? Yeah, yeah, I had that with Castlevania Lords of Shadow, which I've talked about a few times. Where like I, you know, didn't have any like particular interest in it. I thought that was a phenomenally good game, and like the process of writing the review was like more excitement of being able to like introduce people to it i felt like oh man you're gonna love this that was like the that was like the flavor of the review that's what was in my head it's like i i cannot wait to tell you about how good this is um and and that's like a that's a really great place to be writing you know writing from i think yeah for sure so next up matthew there's a question from uh, simon crow hi lads what was the first games mags you remember reading did you ally yourselves with any in particular I was big into Total, a Nintendo mag seemingly written by just two people. I remember it being pretty anarchic for a 10-year-old anyway. I also remember reading one issue of, I think, Games Master that included fan art of Sonic urinating on Mario. (laughs) Despite being a child, I decided this was too childish and never read Games Master again. Um, Well, you know, that sounds like a very sort of of of-its-time piece of fan art. Um, I I love the idea in 2021 publishing a piece of fan art of of, uh, Sonic urinating on Mario. Um, but yeah, hey, I'm sure that's a kink for someone. But um, but anyway, um, yeah. So yeah, first, definitely Sonic fans. They're weird. <laughs> I feel like we covered this uh, before where we've talked about. Um, I can't even remember which episodes it was, but like the various magazine covers ones. I think we discussed. But hmm. the first games mag I remember picking up was um, uh, PC Gamer. However, there is a slight exception in the fact that I used to read um, Sonic the Comic as a kid. Um, this is one of the only comic books you could buy on the shelves. It was like next to the Beano and stuff. Came out every two weeks. Had these quite uh, lofty sci-fi storylines featuring Sonic. Um, some of the books were written by Mark Miller, um, the creator oh. of Kick-Ass. Um, so, yeah. Did Sonic piss on anyone in those stories? Just pisses on Dr. Robotnik <laughs> at the end of every story. <laughs> Everyone's like, this is weird. Weirdly, I do remember a storyline. The, the, the storyline I got mega invested in was like Sonic versus Super Sonic. And what happened, Sonic has to basically like trap Super Sonic inside this like screen, um, this kind of like living screen called the Omni Viewer. Um, and he kind of like basically gets um, Supersonic to like um, fly into there, and then the Omni Viewer kind of freezes Supersonic. They take the Omni Viewer to the center of this asteroid and then blow it up to kill Supersonic. And uh, I remember thinking that was like quite big sci-fi storytelling for basically like you know a kids comic with um, these like silly sort of Sega platforming characters. But um, the reason I picked that I picked that out is because it actually used to have um, little bits of previews of um, Sega Saturn games and Mega Drive games and stuff. So oh, I guess okay. that technically counts as my first one. How about you, Matthew? Mm. Yeah, I mean, like the to, definitely like N sixty four. I think I wasn't really buying mags when when Superplay was around. Like I, I was, I came to mags a little later. We yeah, and, and a little bit of Amiga power because I had an Amiga as well. I had a friend who used to get a lot of Amiga, yeah, more regularly had it, had a, quite a big collection, used to read those at his house, but definitely N64. I really like Games Master. I think Games Master's got this bit of this reputation, because early on it had a lot of that, like, that Mario versus Sonic kind of era of kind of slightly more kind of playground banter. I mean, generally, console mags were a little bit more like that back then. And, but I think, like, from, like, the the sort of late 90s maybe 2000 onwards games master is like it's decent it's a good mag I've, I've got a lot of respect for games master I, I think if i was writing for any when i was at 
future writing for Endgamer, if I was going to have written for any other mag, it would have been Games Master. Like, it had great writers, really funny writing. It was just all games, games, games. There's no bullshit about the industry, no fucking posturing. Just really pure, exactly what I wanted when I was growing up. Um, yeah, I got a lot of respect for Games Master, but I know that it started in a... It was a slightly different mag. Yeah, so um, I think that um, when I look back on like most of the mags I read, um, so when I got aggressively back into games in about 2001, pretty much all the mags I was reading were from Future um, minus um, Play, which um, was uh, published by Hybrid or Paragon at the time. I can never remember which one. It was um, very confusing. But um, yeah, the Future mags I was reading a lot of were like Edge and um, Games Master. I did read um, CVG as well. And um, I read official PlayStation 2 magazine. I read official Xbox magazine. Basically read everything. Like, I just, um, yeah, I couldn't get enough mm. of it. I sort of um, I sort of envy these people who have, like, big piles of, like, um, N64 magazine and stuff. But I just never have the real estate to kind of keep magazines. Like, I just, no. that's, like, the cost of being a millennial. If you're in your 40s, you might have bought a house for, like, 20 grand, like, 20 years ago. But, like, um, <laughs> our generation has obviously been screwed by an older generation on house prices. So there's only so much you can really do with um, the space you've got, you know. I know. The real tragedy of the modern house market is that we can't store old CVGs. <laughs> <laughs> I realise now that does sound preposterous. So let's... Um, Let's move on. So, got quite a long one here, but um, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Oh, actually, why don't you read this one out, Matthew? People can hear okay. your nice, warm voice. Uh, thanks for a warm, well thought out, and entertaining podcast. It's really brought some joy to some pretty gloomy commutes recently. No worries. Um, that's me saying no worries. That's not in the letter. Uh, once upon a time, I wrote really rubbish fortnightly blogs on O and M's website. That lasted a couple years, and it bled a little into Matthew's time, but was mostly before. I think I was writing those blogs at an interesting time for print when the internet was becoming more important to everyone, and mags were trying to keep up with the changes. At O and M, it looked like there was a drive to flesh out the websites with blogs, lists, etc., and produce regular YouTube videos like the absolutely timeless Expert Super Guide. How do you guys feel about? how the industry reacted to the change to being more online. It seems like a lot of people were having to learn skills really different to ones they needed when they started. Do you think there was that much of a generational divide with that? I should also mention that the blog somehow didn't kickstart a lucrative career in video games journalism. I became a doctor instead. So if you're doing health mechanics in games slash a trauma centre episode, feel free to page me for a medical consult. All the best, John Vakinis. Oh, I remember John. Yeah, O&M had... Like a team of like reader bloggers, hmm. and they wrote regular columns. Um, it was a little bit before my time. I think there was some crossover, but the O and M website that was Tom East domain. Like I really had very little to do with it. Um, but uh, well, thank you for your service, John. Much appreciated. <laughs> first, <laughs> thank you for your service. Not like he went to Vietnam or something. Well, thank you for your service of contributing blogs <laughs> and also as a doctor. <laughs> oh yeah, that is true. Actually, if you, as a doctor, yes. Good, good I stuff. was talking about the blogs. I wasn't thinking about the doctor, but I thought I could salvage it <laughs> after your burn. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that um, maybe we can um, take advantage of John's skills generally. Like, um, so I um, I keep getting told by the NHS website that the reason I'm snoring a lot is because I'm overweight, but I'd like to hear a different answer on that. So, um, <laughs> you, 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 you want to hear a doctor who tells you it's because you're not eating enough cake. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> I need a second opinion that's more in line with, I like... I want a second opinion that allows me to be more disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I want a second opinion that makes me feel better. Um, I don't want to hear it's because I weigh 20 stone. I want to hear it's because I am, um, you know, like, uh, I, 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 I don't know, there's some other answer, basically. Um, so, yeah, just You need to drink like. more Pepsi, my friend. <laughs> well, nice. Thanks, Doctor. That's just what I wanted to hear. Exactly. That's the kind of second opinion I'm looking for. Um, so the question itself is about skills, right? And um, a generational divide. Um, yeah, between like p- being on print and seeing online taking off. You're probably more uh, better equipped to talk about this, having actually bridge that divide yeah i think that in retrospect it's like the best um the best decision i made was to try and learn how online works and and stuff like that it's um you know i i i sort of see careers all about like learning skills like it's um that's like ultimately what you're doing i mean obviously like the money thing is one one thing but the more you can learn to do the more kind of rewarding it is as a professional um, and working in media is very much part of that that's why i've enjoyed working on stuff like events and um like I say, working online, doing social media, and um, uh, even doing stuff like uh, working on different sort of video bits for um, uh, both editorial and in like other contexts, and like um, yeah, like all kinds of different stuff. It's it's interesting. I think that um, what's what's quite different is now. I think that the people who kind of come into the orbit of UK games industry are more interested in streaming and getting started in that side of things than they are in writing. There's like lots, still lots of people who want to kind of like make it as, as a writer. But I think that in terms of seeing where the kind of like, where it gets kind of like lucrative or I don't know where, it, where I guess maybe you don't need the, the same type of skills to succeed in streaming that you do in writing. That might be part of it. So yeah, Matthew, what do you think about this in terms of um, reacting to the change of being more online? Yeah, I, I feel like I am like the worst person to ask about this because I didn't react to the change to online at all. Like I've I've never worked on a on a game website directly. You know, I, I worked for Hot Paper Shotgun, but I was on the video team. Like I I'm not part of the the kind of the the daily sort of website you know routine churn whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, I don't I actually have the skill set to do that. You know, the the the, the you know, I'm, I'm better used these days just just as a, a writer, and those words happen to live online. But I'm not doing a lot of like online thinking. Like I'd be terrible. I I, I can't do like news. Um, I can't do like news coverage for a site. Like I just don't. I just don't really have that skill set or mindset. Um, which sounds weird having done this for so long. But I've just uh, I was print to the bitter end and then jumped into video. Yeah, but like generally, I never felt. And the one thing I will say is that when I was working on mags towards the end, and obviously online was just where everyone wanted to be, um, I didn't feel the need for the mags to like play catch up in any way. I think that is a mistake people make is where they try and like employ like online thinking to magazines. It just doesn't make any sense because mm. time is never on your side. Um, if anything, you know, in those last few years, whenever we were redesigning or rethinking things, we were trying to like differentiate the mag from online. We were trying to push it away, um, kind of, you know, get more ret- retrospective about things, kind of try and tap more into the, the mindset of someone who might still be buying mags in the internet age. You know, what do they value? What do they like? I think there's slightly different things. I don't think the internet nat- naturally does serve everything that mags used to do. Um, I think there is a need for like speed and obvious relevance that drives a lot of decisions, uh, which you didn't necessarily have to do in magazines. Yes, yeah, so 
it's it's uh, you know without having done the online thing i can't really speak to it myself but i definitely you know i i i, I saw print as quite a separate art form you could definitely learn how to do that stuff no problem like um i think that a lot of this stuff like seo and things like that are very easy to learn and it's just uh it's like anything else really as soon as you get started it's fine likewise writing news i know how to write i know how to write news online but i was never a news editor online or anything you just um you can just do it you've got to sort of you know just get into the mentality of doing it and it's fine i think you uh underestimate yourself matthew also um yeah i don't I, i'm just i'm quite a slow writer as well that's the other thing mm. um like I wouldn't, I wouldn't employ me on a site because I wouldn't get much out of me, and I'd get really cross. <laughs> well, what a um, what an advert for yourself to any employer. Yeah, I hope there. no one is listening to this. If I ever apply for jobs, dismiss all that and just focus on the earlier hilarious bants because <laughs> that's what you're employing. Um, yeah, I think Matthew would be a great uh, online editor, but um, that's just oh, me. Thanks. That's me sticking up for him. So um, yeah, generational <laughs> divide for sure. Like um, and definitely like a change in sort of priorities as well taste change too so you know the types of games that people are into now who are kind of like breaking into um working in media very different to what they would have been when we were breaking in oh yeah yeah i mean it yeah it's 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 quite telling now actually that that you know i have quite a few peers who work for sites but if you were to come to them completely blind you might think they were actually like streamers because like they're so into that as well you know there's a lot more like side hustle now nowadays which didn't really feel like they used to be, mainly in print. Like, the idea of trying to have a side hustle on top of making a fucking magazine, like, no chance, mm. you know? It just wouldn't have worked. Yeah. I've sort of... My side hustle was occasionally being able to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about streaming and stuff, but I don't, I've just kind of settled on the fact that it's not quite um, an art form. But I, A, I've like, A, as I mentioned to the doctor earlier, I weigh too much to be on streams at the moment. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, as soon as I've eaten more cake, I'm sure I'll, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll have found a resolution to that. But, um, but also, I think that I would kind of approach doing streaming like we do our podcasts, where I would, it, someone else would have to be there. And like the ban- yeah. the bants would have to be the crux of it. Some people asked I, us if we stream some bad PS2 platformers, Matthew. Um, which uh, I, I just can't do it by myself. That's the thing. Yeah, I I just haven't got the when I'm playing games, my head is actually empty most of the time. <laughs> like if I was saying what I'm thinking, it's actually just like. Yeah, and likewise, I'd... and then occasionally I react. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, yeah, but um, hey, you know, something to think about there. Um, I wish I'd become a doctor like John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make all the money. But hey, it's, I'm sure it's been a very... Make all the money. People clap at you. They think you're a hero. God, it's a good life. <laughs> okay, so free yeah. Free Rennies. Do you get free Rennies if you're a doctor? <laughs> um, I'm sure John can give you a prescription for all the Rennies you need, um, Matthew. Oh. Um, you know, some kind of like uh, uh, the, the really hard stuff, you know, the, the real kind of like really concentrated calcium carbonate. Oh, to, uh... yeah, the re- the Rennie dual actions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go, Matthew. We've uh, reached the end of another podcast. Thank you very much for sending in uh, your letters there. If you'd like to um, have a letter read out on the podcast, you can tweet us at BackpagePod on Twitter. You can email us at BackpageGames at gmail.com if you want to send us something slightly longer. Um, we will read them out. Usually we let a few of them kind of build up and then um, read them out in one go. So um, yeah, we always like hearing from listeners. So thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to review us on iTunes or it's never called iTunes anymore, it's Apple Podcasts, but just giving us like a star rating is um, really good for our visibility. So thank you to the 50 plus people who have already done that for us in the um, UK store. We appreciate it. 
Um, uh, what else? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm Samuel W. Roberts. Where are you on Twitter, Matthew? Uh, Mr. Basil underscore Pesto. And uh, our next episode is about something or other. I've forgotten which one, but um, it'll be out next Friday, whatever it is. So um, look forward to that. And uh, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back next week. Bye for now. <laughs>